When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Great to be back here behind the microphone. And uh, I appreciate not only you listening, but I appreciate uh, Curtis Slewa filling in Friday and Monday. We'll, uh, we'll have, play you some highlights and lowlights of Curtis's tenure over the course of the last few days. I was away for uh, my brother Nick's wedding. Uh, so congratulations to he and my new sister-in-law, Kat. I'll... Uh, Give them a shout-out a bit later as well. we got a lot to get to today. I am, first of all, I was not here yesterday. And what would a week be without starting the broadcast week without commendations? So we're going to do commendations in the 3 o'clock hour. In the top of the 4 o'clock hour, I'm going to be joined by former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy. Looking forward to that conversation. And coming up in about 20 minutes or so, Dana Stevens is going to be here. Now, Dana Stevens is a film critic, but... The reason I'm particularly eager to chat with her is because she has this new book out about Buster Keaton that is just fascinating. Now, Buster Keaton seems to be enjoying a moment right now. Now, if you're under the age of, say, 80, maybe you're not hip to a lot of Buster Keaton's best work. Buster Keaton was one of the biggest stars of the silent film era. And a lot of the films still hold up today. I watched uh, The General recently with my son, silent film, and it's still funny. I watched uh, Sherlock Jr. recently, still great. And then he had a whole resurgence of his career a bit later. But there are two new books out about Buster Keaton, and there is a new movie coming out about him. So I thought it might be interesting to take a look at why Buster Keaton's life and career is enjoying such a resurgence. So we're going to do that with Dana Stevens coming up in about 20 minutes. And her book is really interesting. It's called Cameraman, and I'll talk to her when we, I'll talk to her about it when we talk to her. But she uses basically the whole tenure of Buster Keaton's life to chronicle what was happening in society at large at the time. So it's really an interesting book, and uh, I am looking forward to uh, our discussion. Now, I was on the fence about what I was going to start the show with. I've been doing that more and more lately. And I was thinking about talking about whether or not the Pope is going to resign or whether or not he should resign. Maybe we'll get to that later. Maybe we'll get to it tomorrow. But there is this one, you know, they say the the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Or is it they say that the road to Damascus is a two-way street? You know, any proverb, any cliche that begins with the road to, unless it's a Bing Crosby and Bob Hope film, you know you're in, you're going to be in some trouble with that, right? But there is a trend going on in this country which sounds great now, which I guarantee you state after state and maybe even the whole country is going to fall in line like dominoes 
to embrace, and they're going to get praised, maybe even a whole bunch of uh, nice media coverage, a lot of campaign contributions, I'm sure. And I think ultimately the very people hurt by this are going to be the people that this is intended to help. Let me tell you what's going on. Governor, The governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, he signed legislation a few days ago banning anonymous sperm and egg donations, making Colorado the very first state in the country to prohibit this practice, meaning donating sperm anonymously or donating your egg anonymously. Once this law takes effect in 2025, donor-conceived adults will have the legal right to request information about their donor's identity and medical history. So the law requires these sperm banks and egg banks uh, to maintain up-to-date medical records. Let's say you donate a sperm when you're 21. You have to maintain those medical records of that sperm donor for 30 years, 40 years, however long it takes, and contact information for all the donors. It also does some other things, some of which I think are good. It also prohibits donations from donors who refuse to agree to identity disclosures, and it limits the number of families that can use any given donor. Th- that aspect, limiting the number of families that um, that can use any given donor, that I think is a good idea, because after all, you don't want all these half-siblings dating one another. There was an episode of Boston Legal like that, and it was a very sad situation for all parties concerned. Now... The law also raises the minimum age to donate to 21 years of age. This law's passage in Colorado, and I know it's only Colorado, and we do have some listeners there. In fact, I have some second cousins that live in Colorado. I was with some of them over the weekend. But this is going to spread, mark my words, this is going to spread all over the country like wildfire. This is going to be one of those laws that five, ten years from now, Unless things start trending the other direction, 40 states will have passed similar legislation. Now, the law's passage comes just weeks after a jury awarded $9 million to families who had sued a fertility doctor for using his own sperm to impregnate parents. Now, I followed that trial, and I followed that whole discussion. There's a Netflix series about it. It's really bizarre, and yeah, it was. it's really, I think, pretty sick, to be honest that this sperm doctor inserted his own sperm, this fertility doctor inserted his own sperm into all these women. And now he's the father of all these children that didn't know that they had all these half-siblings. Now, what if we make that a crime? Oh, it's already a crime. He deceived these people and these families like crazy under the auspices of helping them. So I think it is possible on the one hand to stop fertility doctors from sneaking their sperm into these sperm donations to allow uh, people that want to conceive in this manner access to the medical records of folks. But I don't think we should prohibit, I don't think we should mandate that you have to give up your anonymity if you want to be a sperm donor or an egg donor. Now, there are all sorts of great reasons to be a sperm donor or an egg donor. I have someone in my, I'm not going to say who, but I have someone in my family who was an egg donor. 
And in part, I, I don't know the details of her situation at the time. This is a few years ago. I, in part, I think part of the reason that she did it was because she wanted to help a family that couldn't conceive. And part of the reason she wanted to do it, quite frankly, was because she needed the money. But I, I'll be honest with you, and I don't know if, there, if she's going to have children on her own one day. I'll be honest with you. If she knew that 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, someone was going to come knocking on her door and say, hi, mom, I don't know that she would have made that egg donation. And it worked for the couple that she gave it to. She doesn't know who the couple is because of anonymity laws, but she got a call a couple of years later from that same place where she donated to, and they wanted to use her eggs again so that 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 family could have a biological sibling, essentially. And at that point, she was not wanting to do that because it is a very it's not like giving a sperm donation. It's a much more labor intensive and I believe much more painful process for women. And I don't pretend to be an an expert on this. But um, the U.S. Donor Conceived Council, which is this group of people that advocates for people that are conceived this way, they are ecstatic about this. And you can bet they're going to use this victory to go all over the country. And they're saying history was made last week in Colorado. The state Senate president says anonymity is a promise that cannot be kept due to the popularity of at-home DNA testing. Well, excuse me, state Senate president Stephen Fenberg. Maybe we can't keep anonymity because of these DNA testing, but this is the exact opposite of that. You're blowing the lid off of anonymity. You're erasing anonymity as a possibility. So... Quote, this bill recognizes this reality and inf- and it affirms that while shared DNA does not always make a family, the identity of the donor is important to the health and identity of many donor-conceived persons. That's the word from the Senate president. I want to be very clear. I don't have any issue with knowing the detailed medical history of every sperm donor, of every egg donor. However, I think this is, uh, this sounds great. But I think this is going to be very problematic, and I'll tell you why. Before I do, let me give you an opportunity to weigh in. Our phone number is 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. There is a study. It's about six years old now. I believe it's from Harvard, which shows that prohibiting anonymity will lead to all sorts of unintended consequences. And to me, I read this study, and if you think about it logically, all of these make sense. One, they say anonymity is going to significantly reduce the pool of sperm donors. I absolutely believe that's the case. Some people just don't want, as I said with the person in my family, some people just don't want a child having any relationship with them they want to do their duty to help procreate the species and help the species carry on but they don't want to have a relationship with someone that they don't intend to be a parent of and i think that's fine if you're going to help a family conceive and your genetic profile is the right fit for what that family wants in their child i think that's great but it shouldn't come with 
knowing that you're going to have someone that wants to build a relationship with you one day. Now, again, if I was adopted or if I was conceived from a sperm donor or an egg donor, I would absolutely want to know my biological parents. I'd want to know who they are, at least. It's only natural, right? You're curious about this. But think about what the byproduct of this is. You're going to have fewer donors. What does that mean when you have fewer donors? Dramatically will hike up the price of this whole process. I know one couple that's going through this process now. I know another couple that went through it recently. It's already a fortune. Can you imagine if you have a dramatically smaller pool of sperm and egg donors, what's that, what that is going to mean for the prices that these couples, who in some cases all they dream about is having a child, can you imagine what that's going to mean for these families? Why do that to them? I don't think you should. And it could also, because of the first two things that I mentioned, it could force a lot of sperm banks to become less selective. Now, I don't agree with that aspect of the Colorado law, which says you should have to be 21 years of age or older. Look, you might not have the maturity at 19 years old or 20 years old to be a great parent. But I think in the case of both men and women, we've seen sometimes that can be your prime childbearing years. And a lot of times a 19 or a 20 year old egg can be a much healthier situation for a future baby than a 35- or a 40-year-old egg. So I don't think we want to get into a situation where this is going to cause fewer donors, more money, and force sperm banks to be less selective. So I am hoping that this does not extend beyond Colorado, but as an analyst of trends and of these situations, I can tell you it will. And the story that the atten- the, the attention that that story of this fertility doctor impregnating all those families unknowingly, that's going to lead to this happening all over the country, this Colorado-style legislation. I, If I were in the legislature, I would vow to fight to preserve the anonymity of these sperm donors and of these egg donors. And again, um, I, if someone calls in and says, hey, look, who are you to deny me the opportunity to know who my biological father is, okay, I'm nobody. But from a public policy point of view, I can't respond to your emotions because I think the importance of having a wide pool of sperm donors, a wide pool of of egg donors, and having their anonymity preserved, even while disclosing their medical history, I think that is much more important than you wanting an emotional attachment to your biological parent. What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. BJ is in Queens. Hello, BJ. Hey, Frank. Good to hear your voice. You know, we've been on this topic, you and I, before. It's kind of like the flip side of Gosnell, the, uh, that crazy abortion doctor, when you had that, uh, that Netflix doctor that was right. creating a master race. He was a nut. Uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, that's not the first guy that's done that, too. There was a bunch of guys that were running around and they'd walk in and they'd see different versions of uh, their face plastered all over the fertility clinic on, on other uh, little babies. But I think that you have to have the anonymity laws. Look, the, the, it, people want to do this and make a contribution to mankind that way. That's probably why they want to do this. That's a very noble 
endeavor, and they shouldn't have someone looking them up unless it's a medical necessity. Say 10, 20, 30 years down the road, there's some type of incurable uh, uh, de- uh, uh, or you know bad trait in the DNA or or in the cell that they could f- you know find a secret to to a cure, but uh, uh, for for an illness that they might have. But when you have these uh, uh, people that just want to uh, play God, uh, like these doctors, that's that's what happens. You know. Now, as far as driving the price up, now that's an interesting question. Uh, it does make it very hard for the average person. Right. To have I mean, it's already access. very expensive, to be honest, yes. to go through this whole process. And sometimes insurance doesn't cover this process. No, it doesn't. And, and but the, the 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 only good side of that is the people that really want to have children will want to have them. I'll tell you something very quickly. I know you have a lot of callers. You know, people that uh, there are people uh, for as much as people want to have children, there are people that don't want to have children, and they'll they'll uh, they'll dump their kids. They'll walk away from their kids. I know I know people uh, after they're born, they dump their kids. They they start new families. And this type of thing. So, um, you know, it's all driven by, you know, what your intentions are. Right. Well, absolutely, BJ. And thank you. And I'm not trying to oversimplify a complex discussion in the span of a 10-minute talk radio format discussion. I get that there are a lot of layers to this. Uh, I just think, one, I was surprised that this story out of Colorado didn't get more attention, number one. Number two... I can see this spreading around the country, and a lot of folks are going to think it's a good idea, and I understand why. Um, but I don't think it is for the reasons that this study from Harvard suggests, and uh, I I think people should just keep every aspect of this in mind before we bang the drum to get this spreading all over the country. Bobby is in Manhattan. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Frank, you there? I'm here, Bobby. What's on your mind? So um, both of my kids, I had a great time with them growing up. They were, um, they have both been uh, Ivy League. And congratulations! Uh, I was present for their growing up and had fun with them. And I was always kicking myself that I didn't become a sperm donor because. I would have liked to become one of those sperm donors who would be available for the family. Well, what's stopping you now, Bobby? Are you too old to to do that now? Uh, 72. Uh, Well, okay. I I don't know what the parameters are, Bobby, but I think that's great. Put it it this way. I still still have oochie-goochie moments, (laughs) and yes, my sperm still works. But, you know, at 72, I don't think there are many families are would be takers. Well, I hear you, Bobby. And if anybody wants to go through a sperm donation the old-fashioned way rather, rather than through a banking system, they can call us and we'll put you in touch with Bobby, 800-848-WABC. Give your information to Avery and we'll, we'll hook you up with, uh, with Bobby purely in the most professional and clinical studies. We're going to talk to Dana Stevens in just a minute about Buster Keaton. But Maxine in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello, Maxine. Hello, Frank. Thank you for taking my call. So I want to speak from the perspective of being an adoptee. And it wasn't until later in life and after both of my parents who adopted me had passed that I went on a journey to find my biological mother. 
and decades later, I did find her. But what I want to say is that it was so frustrating to not know who my birth mother was. I never found out who my birth father was. And it's a very incomplete feeling. It's not like I just wanted to go and disturb someone's life. When I found my birth mother, she couldn't accept the fact that Mm. I had found her. And I prepared emotionally and psychologically for decades for that day to come when I would connect with her. And she hung up the phone and before she did that said, I am not her. I hope you find her. I didn't just do this willy-nilly. Sure. I planned carefully. I worked with people on this to to find her. And, again, I never found my birth father. I did want to know about some medical things. Sure. That I found out eventually as well through another route. But not knowing who your biological parents are has so much emotional impact. Well, no, I, Maxine, and um, first of all, thank you thank for sharing you. that. Two things. One, okay. I know that, right? I have two very close friends who are among my closest friends, both of whom were adopted, and one spent his whole life trying to track down his biological uh, parents. And, you know, his biological father is someone that he would have wanted to have a, a relationship with, I mean, and, and, you know, the father was denied that opportunity because he didn't know anything about mm. the son's existence. And in the other case, in the case of my, my friend Frank, he actually developed a closer relationship with his biological family than he had with his adopted family in many respects. So I get what you're saying. Uh, I do have to break, Maxine, but let me just ask you the, the, the question. Um, given what we're talking about and given your own experiences, what do you think of this law in Colorado? Do you think it's right what they're doing that they should ban anonymity? I disagree with uh, – I, I, I don't think that there should be anonymity. Got it. Okay. Well, look, I respect your opinion, especially given your experience. Maxine, thanks. Call again, and uh, we'll talk when when there's more time about your situation, because this is not an issue that's going to be going anywhere, believe me. Dana Stevens joins me to talk Buster Keaton straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. For the last hundred years, moviegoers, people interested in film, and people that uh, have been exposed to just about every aspect of film society or society at large have heard the name Buster Keaton. But for three or four generations of filmgoers, Buster Keaton is almost more of a concept than something that they can vividly understand. Now, uh, if you look at the incredible... Life and Times of Buster Keaton. Not only did he create so many of the incredible film techniques, both what you see on the screen and what you don't see on the screen, but um, his work is still incredibly 
moving and incredibly funny in many instances, in some cases, a hundred years after it entertained audiences years ago. But until now, I don't know that there's been a book that properly chronicled the nexus of Buster Keaton's work as a professional, what was going on in his own life, but when the cameras weren't running, and what was happening in society at the time. That is until now. The book is Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. And its author is Dana Stevens. Uh, She has been the film critic for Slate for some time, and she's also a co-host of the long-running weekly culture podcast, Slate Culture Gab Fest. And I'm just thrilled that uh, she's joining us on the radio this morning. Dana, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Really an incredible job on the book. Congratulations. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Now, um, a lot of folks who are a little younger may not be familiar with Buster Keaton or his work, and some may not have even heard the name. In a nutshell, who was Buster Keaton and why was he so great? Well, Buster Keaton was uh, one of the great silent comedians, um, you know, physical comedians of the the silent era. But in addition to that, as I explore in my book, he had already been a huge star on the vaudeville stage as a as a child star in his family act. Uh, but before that, he was also a TV star on Into the Fifties. I mean, really, I try to try to make the case in this book that he was one of the great figures in entertainment in the twentieth century. But primarily, people are going to come across him as you know the guy on the silent screen doing all the famous falls and stunts and chases that he specialized in. Why did you choose to write about him? There's a lot of great uh, entertainment giants of the 20th century, a lot of great silent film stars. People like uh, Charlie Chaplin come to mind, for instance. Why did you choose to write about Buster Keaton? Yeah, that's a good question, especially because there's certainly no shortage of books about him. In fact, there's another new biography of him that just came out um, this year, which takes a very different approach from mine. So it wasn't for a lack of of coverage of Buster Keaton in the world of film history. Uh, I mean, for me, there was never any question of if it had been, you know, somebody from the golden age of cinema, who else I would write on, just because he's the kind of patron saint of mine. I really think that he's just one of the great American artists. Um, and I didn't want to write a book on him uh only to recap his life. I mean, as you'll see, I guess you're reading the book, so so you're seeing this now. But what I try to do is to use his life as a kind of lens to look at the historical time span mm-hmm. that he that he lived in. So you know, the thing that fascinated me about him, and that really drove the uh, the experience of starting to research the book, was. The, his lifespan, the period of, of dates that he lived through. He was born in 1895, and he died in 1966. So that's not a hugely long lifespan. He was only 70 years old when he died. But just think of how much America oh, yeah. changed and how much the world changed between 1895 and 1966. So it more it more had to do with using him as you know a way to talk about all the changes in technology and entertainment and you know just social relationships and everything in America during that time. You know, I really didn't have a full appreciation appreciation of the fact that he was a child vaudeville star. How did he make that uh, transition from being a vaudeville star at a very young age to being a one of the biggest stars in Hollywood as a silent film star? You know, that is part of the mystery of Buster Keaton, and that was something I really, really wanted to understand in the part of the book about that transition in 1917, which is the year he moved from stage to screen, because it's somewhat hard to understand how somebody who you know, had had spent their whole life in this much earlier medium, right, in a medium that, in fact, was starting to disappear, vaudeville, and 
makes the transition to movies and goes from being a you know great performer in one area to a great performer in this entirely new medium without any seeming learning curve. And so I really wanted to look at how he was able to make that jump. And I think, I mean, it's just speculation, but I think a huge part of it is that he would have grown up around cinema. You know, he would have grown mm. up playing on vaudeville bills with his family act, the Three Keatons, that almost always had a movie as well. You know, in his very early childhood, that would have been um, a very kind of primitive movie. You know, it probably would have been just a couple of minutes long and probably, you know, just a stationary camera in one place, and he kind of grew up along with the movies. Because something I didn't mention earlier about the, the fascination with 1895, the year of his birth, is that it was also the year that is usually called the year of the invention of the movies. I mean, it's the year that the Lumiere brothers in France first projected motion pictures for an audience. So, you know, he's born the same year as movies, which means that he grows up along the form with the form of movies. And he must have just absorbed enough of that, you know, as a as a curious kid growing up in vaudeville and seeing film all around him to have known what he was doing from, from day one in front of a camera and behind it as well. He is so well known as a, as a comic on television and in film and on stage. For people that maybe haven't even seen a Buster Keaton film and are com totally unfamiliar with him as a performer, what were his comedic strengths? What did he do that was so funny? I mean, well, I mean, I guess the main thing I would say is just that he was kind of, you know, as a child, he was he was a kind of slapstick prodigy, you know, and he took that ability, the ability to fall, which in his childhood was essentially the ability to be thrown because the act, the Three Keatons, is all about his dad throwing him around stage. Because he grew up, you know, doing physical comedy from the moment he could walk practically, he knew how to fall and he knew how to, you know, do incredible stunts in a way that made him seem like he was in some kind of different universe than all the performers around him. And you see that when you watch his movies, that he seemed, the laws of physics seem to apply to his body differently than the bodies surrounding him on screen. So I can't really describe it unless you have seen the films themselves, but, you know, he just could survive things that didn't seem like a human body should be able to survive. And on top of that, he was not just performing in front of the camera, but he was the one, you know, behind the camera devising all of these crazy stunts in the first place. He also, I think, in addition to, you know, being great at, at, at falling and all kinds of acrobatics and so forth, he um, he loved props. You know, he loved technology and he loved to, to build strange sets, you know, whether it was trains chasing each other or houses spinning on an axis or, you know, he just had a, a kind of crazy imagination for, you know, building um, imaginative worlds. And uh, and so there are a lot of films he made, the general, you know, the great train chase movie is the one that comes to mind that really only could have sprung from that particular brain, you know, with its very mechanical way of thinking about the world. Well, that is interesting. And by the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dana Stevens. She's written a new book called Cameraman, which chronicles not only the career and the life and times of Buster Keaton, but what was happening in America and the world uh, from the late 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. And clearly, when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to what was happening in, and in, in uh, journalism, when it comes to minority rights, the world looked a lot different in the 1960s than it did in the 1890s. But I don't think there's an area where it's easier to observe that change than the area of entertainment. I mean, if you look at films that were being made at the dawn of Buster Keaton's cinematic career and then the last films that he made, uh, films like It's a Mad Mad World, for instance, they look completely different. How much of the 
film technique that we're so accustomed to seeing today was pioneered by Buster Keaton, either in terms of technology or stylistically or in terms of the actual content that was that people were seeing on cinema screens. I mean, he was a pioneer, certainly. I think it's hard to point to any one technique or any one, you know, stylistic touch that was invented by him. It was more, I think, and this is what what fascinated me about it, that he was in a very sophisticated way able to take things that other people were doing and push Mm. them further. I mean, an example of that from his silent era would be um, would be doubling images on the screen, you know, what's sort of superimposing, having more than one um, figure, reproducing yourself on screen, which was done within the camera by masking the lens, right, and and rewinding the film and then filming again so that you could get two busters. Well, he has a film called The Playhouse, I think it's from 1921, where he recreates himself on on screen dozens of times. He plays every character in a vaudeville show. So, you know, he's everybody on stage, he's everyone in the audience, he's the whole crew. So he certainly was not the first person to have used that kind of doubling technique, but, you know, he took it much further than anyone had and in ways that still look kind of technically breathtaking. But what fascinated me again about 1917, that year he enters the movies, is that all of those techniques were, you know, just starting to be to be used and to be um, reproduced from movie to movie. So, you know, he kind of got in, he got in just at the right moment where he could grab ideas that others like D.W. Griffith, for example, had had started and really run with them and push them even further. If you had to pick, what would you say your favorite Buster Keaton films are? And do you think they would still hold up with most audiences today? Well, I mean, in answer to the second question, I can tell you for a fact that they still hold up because for the past few months since this book came out, I've been going around screening them in places, um, sometimes to audiences who have not seen Keaton before, like kids, for example, and sometimes to people who have who have been watching him for, for years, and they kill. I mean, they never, never fail mm to just, um, you know, just to get the audience on the floor. Uh, As for my favorite, it's it's really hard when you know somebody's work really well. It almost switches from day to day. But I think traditionally I say that my favorite is his last independent film, which is Steamboat Bill Jr. And I showed that at the the book launch event just because I have a real sentimental attachment to that movie. And as you see in the book, there's a whole chapter about Steamboat Bill Jr., if you know a little bit about his life, his personal life and professional life and what was going on in both at that moment, Steamboat Bill is this really pivotal movie in, in, in all areas of his life. So it's fascinating to watch for that reason. And it's just a hilarious film. And it has probably his most famous stunt that even people who don't know Keaton well probably have seen repeated in a GIF, for example, on social media. It's always going around, which is the one where the frame of the house, you know, the entire house front falls on him. And he just happens to be framed in one little window opening. So that was one of his most famous and one of his most dangerous stunts. Oh, no, I I can imagine. And he did all of his own stunts at the time, right? There was no Buster Keaton stuntman. No, he was a real stickler about that. I think there's one stunt stunt double for him in all of his silent film era, and that was because he needed a pole vaulter for for a scene that was about you know athletics, and he just decided that rather than learn to pole vault, which would have taken him months, he hired the gold medalist in in pole vaulting from the previous year. But no, he that was a, a huge point of pride with him that he wanted to not only be the one doing all the stunts for himself, but he sometimes doubled for his co-stars. You know, he would put on a co-star's 
costume and fall off a train or something because he knew that that person couldn't do it without a getting injured and b you know not being able to do it as, as funny as he could. So yeah, he, he didn't like to use stunt people, and he also liked to frame himself. You know, to pull the camera far back enough that you could see that it was him in the frame and that there were no tricks in the camera, and you know that all of it was really happening in real time. You referenced his last independently produced film. He made some films in the studio system, mostly for MGM. I'm wondering if you can explain kind of the difference, what that meant in terms of the pro final product that was produced, what viewers actually saw, also um, what that meant for him in his personal life, and sort of what was happening in Hollywood at the time with the emergence of the Hollywood studio system. I know that kind of three-part question is probably uh, better left to a, an eight-week lecture than a, than a one-minute <laughs> response, but do the best you can. Yeah, I was going to say, if you want to really hear about it, you've got to read the book. But um, but that was a huge moment for him. The the moment after he makes Steamboat Bill Jr., the one I was just talking about, The House Falls on Him, was filmed in mid-1927. And what else happened in film history in 1927 that was a big deal? Well, The Jazz Singer came out, the first – it's usually called the first sound film, although, you know, as with most technological developments, sound had been kind of slowly creeping into film, and, you know, there had already been synchronized music and so forth. But The Jazz Singer is the first movie to have synchronized dialogue and, you know, it took the film industry and the nation by storm. And suddenly, in much faster than anyone in the film industry had thought, suddenly everybody wanted sound. All the theaters were trying to rewire themselves so that they could show sound movies. All the studios were trying to shut down their silent film production and start up sound production as fast as possible. And it was really a, a very violent thing for the whole film industry, you know, not just for Keaton's career, but many, many careers were upended at that time. Um, but part of the result for Keaton of, um, of this changeover from silent to sound, which of course also went with big economic changes in the film industry, is that independent studios like the one he had been running, you know, running with the, with the support, the financial support of a producer for the last 10 years, were starting to shut down. It was not a viable thing to do anymore to have you know, these little mom and pop sized studios. And the studio system as we think of it, you know, the classic Hollywood studio system with the big six studios running everything was already starting to take over very quickly. So essentially this moment, you know, where he signs a contract with MGM, something he later called the worst mistake of my life, um, it happened because there wasn't really any, anywhere else to go. It had to be one of the big six studios, and that was kind of, you know, the, the, well, why the was most why was one. Why did he view that? I know he developed a drinking problem and was having some personal issues uh, shortly thereafter, but why was that such a big mistake for him? Did he view it that way anyway? Well, I think it was just simply because that style of filmmaking, you know, the, the big corporate filmmaking style that MGM in particular was starting to innovate at that point, which is, you know, essentially that instead of running your own little unit where you sit down, as he had been doing for 10 years with your little writing crew and, you know, come up with your story and then go out with your cameraman and your set designer and create exactly the vision you want, of course, you are instead in this huge company where there's a, you know, a design department and there's a... Mm you know, um, makeup department and the ideas are being fed to you by a team of screenwriters. And so that just didn't suit his style of, of art making at all. I mean, his whole life, whether it was first with his family and the Three Keatons or later producing and directing and editing and, and starring in his own films, he had just always 
kind of run the show himself and, you know, realized his own individual vision. And so he really didn't, he was kind of like an animal in a cage at MGM. You know, he really did not fit into that kind of corporate framework and they didn't understand him at all. You know, the producers and screenwriters who were trying to produce material for him didn't understand why he was funny or how he worked. And so it very quick, quickly turned into a disastrous situation. Not to mention, as you, as you said, that he, you know, his marriage was falling apart. He was drinking too much. His father had been an alcoholic before him and you know at this moment in his mid-30s he became one too and you know it was it was just a mess so he had some very dark years there in the 1930s there are some uh silent film stars that were able to make that transition to talking pictures pretty effectively uh there are others whose names are almost completely forgotten uh people like may murray and uh, norma talmage and i'm wondering how did buster keaton handle that transition from silent pictures to talking pictures how did that affect his career well you know i mean if you look at his his how how his career went at that point it's not really the case that his voice ruined his career you know that he didn't know how to say lines or he wasn't you know comfortable in front of a sound camera he was perfectly interested in making sound films but it, it really did have more to do with well, for one thing, the particular studio he landed at, you know, and the fact that they didn't really seem to get what, what he was up to at all, and and just the, the, the economics of the whole thing. I mean, I think that his, his misery at MGM didn't really have to do with, well, now I have to be silent. It, ha- it was, now I have to do what other people are telling me to do instead of what I wanted to do, you know. And, in fact, I think there's a lot of mismaking about people's voice ruining their careers, you know, the way it happens in, um, in Singing, Singing in the Rain, the rain sure. which is one of our, you know, made in 1954 or something, but one of our big stories about, you know, that transition in, from the, the 20s to the 30s. In reality, it seems like what happened is public taste changed, you know, and that's why um, the kind of great leading ladies of silent cinema, almost none of them, Greta Garbo is one exception, but almost none of them made that jump, you know, because the style of what a woman should be was, was changing very fast, too, you know, the sort of um, uh, the expectation of a female star. So suddenly there were these kind of vampy pre-code ladies who had absolutely nothing to do with the, you know, in, much more innocent type that had been the silent screen type. Um, yeah, it's, it was it was just a, a moment when the public suddenly wanted something different, and a lot of people's careers were the casualty of that. You mentioned the changing role of women in film. There was also a, a great deal of a changing role for women in society from uh, the time Keaton's career started to the time that he passed away. How did uh, Buster Keaton deal with women in film and then subsequently on television? Did, was he someone that would be characterized as sort of a, a progressive filmmaker when it came to women's roles, or did he sort of just change as the studio system changed? I mean, I think it was a little bit more the latter. I talk a lot about women in the book and about, you know, how the the, the image of the, the leading ladies in his films changed so much over the course, you know, from the, the late teens when he started making movies, even just until the late 20s, you know, until the, that period when he, he lost his independence as a filmmaker. And I don't think it was because he was trying to put forward any kind of feminist vision in his mm. movies whatsoever. I don't think he really had that on his mind at all. He was a very apolitical guy in his life. Um, but but it was just that society was changing so rapidly around him, you know, that naturally the 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 way that 
women were were shown in films was going to be different too. So, for example, you know the the girls that he's trying to win the the, the win their hearts in his early 1920s films are like girls in gingham dresses, you know, sweet little farm girls. Right, desperate um, for him to fight for the Confederacy. <laughs> that, yeah. That's very true in the general, for sure. Although I also think that the reading of that movie as a pro-Confederate or lost cause movie is, is kind of inaccurate because, once again, it was his apoliticism. You know, it's true that he plays a Confederate hero in that movie, but it's not at all a pro-Confederate movie. It was it really it was his attempt to, as he saw it, side with the underdog since the South had lost the war. But at any rate, to get back to your question about women, and then by the end of the 20s, this, the women that he's trying to win over in his movies are flappers, essentially. You know, they're they're going out drinking and, you know, they're, I don't know, flirting with different men. And it's just it's a completely different way of, of seeing femininity, which, again, I think was not necessarily a choice on his part. I love the episode of The Twilight Zone that he's in, where it becomes briefly a uh, a silent film. And it's just very cleverly done. It's incredibly funny. Uh, but Towards the end of Buster Keaton's career, I referenced the the bit that he played in It's a Mad, Mad World. How did he fare uh, as uh, society's tastes were changing, as films weren't just going from silent to talking, but from black and white to color? And uh, you saw all sorts of films that uh, featured Buster Keaton, like Beach Bank Blanket Bingo, which were light years from films like Sherlock Jr. and other uh, work that he was doing in the 20s. How did he handle that transition and how did audiences remember him in the late 50s, early 60s as compared to the late 20s, early 30s? I mean, the late 50s and 60s in particular was a really prosperous and successful time for him. Obviously, he didn't have the independence he had before. You know, in those movies that you mentioned, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World or, or Beach Blanket Bingo or, I mean, what else was he in? He would he appeared in, you know, Around the World in 80 Days and The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and all those kind of big overstuffed star vehicles that were in, in vogue at the time in the early 60s. Um, but he he had actually already been through a career resurgence at that point because it was TV. It was it was mm. the you know the the real launch of TV in the late 40s and early 50s that recharged his career. You know he'd had that that really down and out period in the mid 30s where he was fired from MGM for drinking and absenteeism. He couldn't get work, and that only lasted a few years really. Then he went back to MGM, not no longer as a performer, but as a gag writer behind the scenes, writing for the Marx Brothers and others, and uh, and was kind of keeping his head down. You know, he was making a living in entertainment, but you know, I think he he no longer knew whether he wanted to or could get in front of a camera. All that started to change with TV because suddenly there was a new medium that he was excited about, which in its early days drew a lot of people from from vaudeville. And suddenly those skills, like live entertainment skills, right, because early TV was often live, um, were were in demand again. So he was everywhere in the 1950s. And, in fact, I've spoken to a few people at screenings or who have read the book since it came out who said, oh, yeah, you know, people slightly older than me who grew up knowing him as a TV performer. Right. He was the guy in the aspirin commercials, you know, and he was the guy on The Twilight Zone, the episode that you remember. Um, and, you know, he was on Candid Camera and – he was never on I Love Lucy, but he was actually one of the forces behind uh, Lucille Ball creating the pilot for I Love Lucy, which I talk about a bit in the book because he was good friends with Lucille Ball. So his 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 presence is everywhere in that period of, of early television. And by the time he died in 1966, 
I feel like he was a sort of a venerated figure, both as a kind of a beloved figure on TV and because his movies were starting to come back. Um, so something that he had not foreseen at all, you know, since he didn't make much of an effort to preserve his movies or to, to keep them in people's minds at all, is that they they did have a resurgence. And, you know, I think he died in 66, realizing that he would be remembered. Well, speaking of a resurgence, you mentioned your, yours is one of two new books out about Buster Keaton. I understand there's also a film uh, that's uh, that's in the works that's coming out soon about Buster Keaton. What do you think is behind the resurgence in interest in Buster Keaton in the year 2022, 60 years after he's passed away? You know, I don't I as far as my book and the other book coming out at the same time, that had nothing to do with any kind of anniversary or with any um attempt to time it to any resurgence. It was just simply that the pandemic delayed both of our books and they ended up coming out mm. at the same time. Um and the movie that's being made about him is actually from a it's it was it's an option from a book that came out long ago. It's a book that's I don't know, thirty years old or something like that. So I'm not quite sure whether it was the interest in our books, you know, these two new biographies that launched you know, that got that the, the biopic to be announced. To me, I mean, and I, I say this in the book, I think it's at the very in the last sentence probably, he's he's this this figure who's always coming, you know, always of the future in a way. There's something that's so timeless about him that each generation that discovers him gets just as excited, you know, as if they were discovering him for the first time back in the 20s. And um, for me, part of the part of the point of writing the book was to be part of that legacy, you know, and to make sure that he is someone that keeps on making kids laugh because I've never seen a kid not immediately understand the humor of Keaton. It's so physical and so simple. Um, and to make sure that he doesn't become someone who's a, a dusty archival figure mm. that is vaguely confused with Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd, also great comedians, but completely different, completely distinct from what he was doing. As you say, still and always ahead of his time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Dana Stevens, uh, the book is Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Thanks so much for uh, joining me on the radio. I hope we can do this again soon. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. going to you want to comment on uh, any portion of our discussion with dana stevens you're welcome to give me a call 1-800-848-wabc that's 1-800-848-9222 additionally i'm sure i've a lot of you have written to me over the course of the last few days about the story that was in sunday's new york post which mentions me where, you know, a story that we've been covering a little bit, the dawn of the new metaverse, uh, there's going to be a metaverse. Now, if you're not up on this, we've covered this, and I don't want to 
I don't want to cover too much ground that we've already touched upon. But the metaverse is basically the real world only digitally. And it looks like this is the direction that everybody is going, right? It looks like we're moving towards everything being digital. And you have a few different places where the metaverse is going to exist. So so a friend of mine, some friends of mine, are building a metaverse Staten Island. And if you are, if you read that New York Post article, I've linked to it at facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. One of the, they're building a metaverse Staten Island and what's obviously one of the most popular, hottest residential real estate plots on Staten Island. Well, obviously, it's the house where they filmed The Godfather. So I have said that I am going to be one of the first bidders. And you can read this whole article. It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. I have said that I am going to be one of the first bidders for this Godfather house. And I am willing to bid up to $3,500. Now, I'm hoping to get it for less. But I'm willing to bid up to $3,500. Now, um, my wife would throw me out of the house, the real house, not the digital house, if I spent $3,500. But I honestly think it's a very good investment. And I, no exaggeration, think that this is something that could be sold for 10 or 20 times that in a couple of years. Now, what I know a lot of people are doing even now, I'm not even into the metaverse and digital stuff. I just recognize trends. And the metaverse uh, I see being right now Bitcoin eight years ago with a lot of opportunities to in- invest on the ground floor and to do a lot of interesting things. So uh, what I am going to do, I'm also going to buy my own property, my 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 real life house, because I don't want some crazy listener from the Facebook group buying my house and then putting up all this anti-Frank Magrano propaganda at my address in the metaverse. So I I think this is in the New York Post article, but I I think what you should do, or what I'm doing, I don't want to say what anybody else should do because a lot of people just think it's a giant waste of time, but is at least register so that you can begin uh, when they, next week, when they put their own properties up for sale. I think I could buy my house for $20 or $40 at the end of the day, what's $20 or $40? That's one Uber ride. So uh, I'm going to register. I just registered, actually, in the commercial at nycmeta.io. That's n-y-c-m-e-t-a dot i-o. But uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I, it was kind of cool just to be mentioned along with those other Godfather fans. All right. Coming up next hour, we're going to go through your mail. You want to send an email or get your voice heard via the written word, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. we got commendations coming up in the 3 o'clock hour. And uh, we are going to talk with former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy at 4 o'clock. So we got a lot of show to get to. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you. 800-848-WABC. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, make sure to help control the pet population and get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, uh, just back from our 50th state. That's right. <clears throat> my first trip to Hawaii was out there for my brother's wedding. For anybody that cares about that, uh, the details of that trip, I will share them with you a little later this hour. I promise not to go into too much painstaking detail, but um, some of you, believe it or not, did seem to express an interest in the things that I was doing. So we'll uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But it was interesting when it came to travel or when it comes to travel, there was two there were two issues that came up. One, when I was interacting with my second cousins and step second cousins when I first arrived in Hawaii. That's how they say it. Apparently, the natives Hawaii. So um, that was one of the one of the big ticket items, one of the big ticket debate items among my family and friends was about reclining on an airplane. Now, I don't know if you've ever flown United, but at least on the planes that I took the last few days, it was not like JetBlue. JetBlue, the, I've flown them a couple of different places. They give you a lot of legroom. These United flights, and you really feel it on a five-and-a-half, six-hour flight, and I'm not a tall guy. I can't imagine if I was over six foot or something, like my dad and my brothers, but... It's it's a pretty compact it's a pretty compact area. There's not a tremendous amount of legroom. But there was this whole debate that I never really thought much about before. And the debate was about whether or not you should recline on one of these airplane flights. And I'd love to hear your view of that situation. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Because my philosophy always was, and I think I got this from Gary Delabate from the old Howard Stern show. I, I think I heard him say this maybe 20 years ago, and I adopted it on my own because it, made, it seemed to make sense. My philosophy always was this, that whether you're talking on a bus or on, where there is a lot more room, or on an airplane, you recline, but you don't recline all the way. You see how much all the way would be, and then you go up a little bit. But um, so that was always my philosophy. I don't remember reclining on the way uh, on the way out to Hawaii, but on the way back, I kept that in mind because this is what my step second cousin Scott said. He he said, look. You know, as Frank said, the United flights don't really give you that much room. So even if you recline, what are you really gaining? So that made sense to me. So I am um, I on the way back. I didn't recline at all. But I was amazed as we were discussing this. The heated debate between the pro recline people and the anti recline people. So I'd love to know where you stand on this. Look, obviously, if no one's sitting behind you, it's a non-issue. But on the way back, I didn't recline uh, because I didn't know anybody thought this was an issue. I didn't know that it irked people behind me if you reclined. But additionally, as as my step-second cousin Scott said, you really don't gain much 
by reclining, at least on these United flights. So I didn't recline on the way back to New York, but I did recline on the way out. Where do you stand on the issue of reclining on an airplane? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And here is the other thing, which I posted on Twitter, and a lot of people had a surprising reaction to, and they were both very heated uh, on, on this question. I had a layover in San Francisco, and... I've never been to San Francisco before, and still, I've only now been to uh, San Francisco, the airport there. But I feel like I got a good sense of San Francisco from the airport. Now, I didn't get to see any of the homeless people, and the and the um, crime that I hear defines a big part of San Francisco now. I didn't get to go to any of the vineyards, but I did have a nice lunch at a San Francisco airport, and be able to drink some wine. So here's my question for you. Do you count an airport layover as a city that you've visited? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. A listener wrote me in response to my tweet about this. He said, I knew a girl in her early 20s who made it a project to visit all 50 states and then brag about having done so. She was from Alaska. She drove through some states on car trips without stopping other than for rest stops on on interstates. I gave her those, but she also counted layovers at airports. I did not allow her those, and it did not sit well with her. I once took, took a student charter flight back to New York from London on a turboprop plane. The pilot announced that the plane was too heavy to load enough fuel to go nonstop, and would have to land at Shannon Airport for refueling. I have always been of two minds about whether I've ever been to Ireland. I remember seeing this surreal, lush green land from the plane on a bright, clear day and thinking, I must go to Ireland on my next trip. And then this fellow writes, this was many years ago, he never went again. So the question is twofold. One, do you recline in airplanes? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. And then the second travel-related question is, If you have a layover in a city, does it count as having visited that city? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Igor in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Hey there, Frank. Welcome back. It's great to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be back. I I enjoyed the piece uh, about uh, Keaton, and I wanted to tell you about a great uh, uh, theater experience. I took my uh, young kids up to a theater in Suffern called Lafayette Theater. And before COVID, there was an organization that would uh, play a Wurlitzer organ to silent movies. And I just want to tell you, it was, a, it was an amazing experience. It was a very immersive. And when you, when you saw that material that Keaton put up there, it, it was timeless, just as you said. And with the, with the live music on a live Wurlitzer organ, where you can see the organist playing it, it's just spectacular. Well, you know, it's it's a great point that you make because I've discussed silent movies with people that are experts about this. The two that, that I've had the lengthiest discussions about this, not including Dana Stevens just now, but were David Pietruza, who's one of my favorite living historians, who's written a lot of great books about the 1920s and the decade that led up to the 1920s. And and Joe Franklin, who was a hero of mine, a friend of mine, a very close friend, great on the radio. And he wrote a great book about silent films. And I said to both of them, 
I said, you know, there are some silent films that I enjoy, but on the whole, I don't enjoy the silent films nearly as much as the talkies. And they said the same thing, that, basically the same thing that you just said. They said that's because you're not watching them right. You have to watch it not on a television screen, but you need to watch it in a theater with a whole immersive sound and music experience. That's how these silent films are meant to be viewed, not on a television set at home. So I, uh, I, I, I think maybe they have a point based on what you're saying. No question. No question, Frank. And it turns out this particular theater has been restored to its original grandeur. It was built in 1924. And when you surround yourself with all that stuff that's been done the right way, and they're playing that organ and showing that movie, I, I can tell you the entertainment is at a very, very high level, just like you say. So tell me again what the theater is and how people can, can take advantage of that. It was the uh, I, I don't I don't even know if it's a for profit business, quite honestly, because it's hard to think they it's called the Lafayette Theater in Suffern, New York. And it's on Lafayette Avenue, which is kind of the main street of, of Suffern. And uh, th- this organization that was associated with theater music playing the Wurlitzer organ, they would sponsor typically on a Saturday early afternoon, a session where they would play the Wurlitzer and they play a silent film. And we were there for uh, the. It was built in 1924, so I'm trying to think. We were there probably for, you know, one of the significant anniversaries of the opening of the theater. And uh, again, just a great experience. Uh, the theater's still there. I haven't been there since COVID came along. But they're still in business, and and they also happen to show. Right now, I just looked at the website to make sure they're open. They're showing the new Top Gun film, the Maverick films. They show new films as yeah, well. Yeah, that's supposed to be pretty good, by the way. And um, I, I'm looking forward to uh, checking that out. My wife and I were just saying we got to put that one on our list. Thank you very much, Igor. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Dan, what is on your mind? Frank, how are you? Oh, I, I make am, a living. Okay. I am a uh, older gentleman, but just started listening to you guys and uh, – well, for the first question, I have a couple of points after this, but the first uh, question, as far as the seats going back on a plane, I mean, I, I used to fly back in the day when People's Express was in existence, and, you know, there was livestock in the back of the plane, and, you, <laughs> you know, but sure, it was crazy. I mean, smoking and all that, you know, so, but I was always, always very tentative, never, never pushed my, uh, my luck with uh, pushing the seat back, and I was very considerate with that. You know, and I, I used, to, I used to always, you know, if somebody else in my aisle was doing it, doing it, I would let them know. Listen, you, you know, you're infringing on somebody's thing. So I was good with that. But uh, well, so, what, what, what is your, what is your philosophy then, Dan? Is it no reclining, no matter what, or is it a moderate recline philosophy? Moderate, moderate. You know, okay. I would say moderate, and you'd be very, you know, you look back, you maybe even give it a heads up to the person. Why am I okay? That kind of thing, you know. Okay, yeah. Be- if it was because yeah, I didn't like think over, okay. I, I didn't yeah. think I was reclining at all on the first flight, but then when we went in for a landing, one of the flight attendants came over and she said to me, "Oh, can you push you push your chair up a bit?" So I guess I was reclining, but I didn't feel it. So I made an effort not to recline recline on the next right. one. Yeah, I can I can understand that, but and uh, I mean if it was over a two, it was over a two hour flight, I I took care of myself, so I was passed out by ten minutes into the flight. So <laughs> that, that it never it never came up, and I you could put me on an ironing board, and I would have I would have lasted the flight. Yeah, I think but we're I was, kindred uh, spirits on that one, Dan. Yes, and that's you know I mean that's that says that's pretty true today. I think 
But uh, and what was the second part of the? It what was, was the if you have a layover in a city, but you don't step okay. outside of the airport. Have you visited that city? I got all sorts of responses on Twitter on this, and people can weigh in on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. Uh, some people said yes if you had lunch. Other people said no. Um, but people were very passionate about this. I would. It's, it's a very interesting, interesting question. But I have a bunch of friends. Like I said, I'm 62 years old, so I, I go back. But in my gang, if 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 you uh, got a number or bagged a stewardess or whatever the case, you had to you had to either get a number and add a kill to your list. Or it didn't count as a city uh, that you visited. Well, I mean, look, you I'm, follow uh, what I'm saying. I, I do, I do, uh, Dan. Thank you. I'm a married guy. I'm not going to be bagging stewardesses or uh, adding kills to my list. So that one wouldn't apply to me. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you're if you're just tuning in, I did a lot of traveling over the last few days, and I have two questions. One, where do you come down on the issue of reclining on an airplane? And number two, if you visit a city for a layover. But don't leave the airport. Have you visited that city? And what makes a visit then? Let's say my uh, layover lasted for more than a day. Would would you? Uh, does that mean that you, you know, uh, if they put me up in a hotel up the block from the airport, then did did then I now visit all of a sudden? Let me know what you think. And by the way, we just lost everybody that was on hold. So those of you that were on hold. Call back. We were having some problems with the phones. Uh, just call back at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So I'm sorry about that if you found yourself getting cut off. But just call back, and we'll get right to you. And you can also, by the way, find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash moranofan. You can read that article about the Godfather uh, house in the metaverse that I'm looking to bid on. Uh, although don't get, I'm not looking to create any more people in a bidding war w- with me. So if you're only bid on it if you're planning on bidding less than than thirty five hundred dollars because that's my max at this point. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We got the mail coming up. I will give you some of the highlights of my trip to Hawaii and uh, coming up at uh, four o'clock. Governor, former governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy is going to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation about prison reentry. On that front, uh, let me say hello to Al in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. Welcome back. It's great to be back. Uh, Thank you. That's great. Listen, I hope you get at least the 10,000 miles that you went. Uh, you get that credit because you definitely get an upgrade, maybe to business. Or yeah, I'm, I'm going to contact United and, and see it because I did join their frequent flyer club, but I didn't join it mm-hmm. until after I had already purchased my ticket. So I'm going to see if they'll give me that credit. Yeah, they'll keep your stuff in the back. And remember, when if suppose it expires, if you buy like a magazine subscription, that'll keep running a lot of times. Okay, all right. Well, uh, I do like magazines. Yeah, as far as uh, the visits, it's funny. I've been all over Europe, but the only time I was in Ireland was at Shannon, and it was exactly what that dude said. I mean, I flew over the greenest grass with stones, and it looked incredible. But so does t- does that count? Yes, I do. And I've been in San Fran, same thing. Uh, right at that airport. In fact, when I went there, a Korean airplane had crashed two days before. You could see all the things, and, and a girl survived it. She actually got hit by the fire truck that came to rescue. Can you imagine? She got crushed by it. But terrible. But anyway, San Fran's uh, a lovely city, and I would have to say you'll always remember that. You know, you weren't on a cable car, right? But guess what? 
you, you saw the city, you saw the bay, right? I, well, I, didn't see the I mean, barely, barely, barely. I hear you. But, but with the seats, it's like this. When you go to the beach, you've got to set up your perimeter or somebody's going to encroach. When you park a car, if you don't leave yourself a foot each way, they're going to encroach. So when you hop in that plane after $1,000, whatever you paid, that seat with that little skinny pitch and 17 inches wide, guess what? You slowly and politely let them know, but right from the get-go, not later, because you do it later, some kid's going to be slapping back of you. you. You might see a food tray right in your head. Just set the parameters right from the beginning. You know, come up a little bit if you want. But if you don't do it later on, they may give you the evil eye. You know what I mean? So the etiquette so, uh, in your view, the etiquette in your view is as long as you offer, um, you know, an advisory, it's not it's not consent that you're seeking, but it's notification that you're giving. As long as you give that really, notification, you have a license to recline. Hey, it's a civilized. It's not like in the 50s where human beings were human beings. You got a real seat. They're taking out <laughs> extra seats because of revenue. Right in there in Europe, they want you to stand. They got some way where you can actually be like in a a, a, a swing, like in a playground, and you're actually going to sit in that. But luckily, they halted that. They said no. Ryan will charge you for anything and everything. You know, oh, you want to use a loo, you know, bathroom? <laughs> we charge you for that. Oh, no, I know. They nickel and dime yeah. you like crazy. Believe me. Uh, yeah, get those vials, all right? Yeah, I will. I'm going to reach out to them again. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Frank is in Queens. Hello, Frank. Hey, Frank. Um, it's an interesting question because what's popular on Facebook lately, I say, uh, oh, you know, with the over 40 crowd is a lot of people like to post the cities they've been to. And then have people comment, you know, if they've been to those cities. And I've actually done a lot of traveling in my life. And, and I've had layovers in cities with friends. And I know my friends are counting those cities at visits, but I don't. I feel unless you get out of that airport and see the city, even if you drive through it, uh, you're not really getting a sense of the city. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of my view. I, I feel like you have to step out of the airport. So I feel like if I had a layover in a city that lasted a day and they put me up in a hotel around the block from the airport, in my view, that counts as a visit. But not stepping outside of the airport, for some reason in my book, that doesn't count as a visit. Does that make sense? I agree, and it's something I've thought about too. Because when I was younger, I was in Italy, and I was, I was um, leaving Florence, and I was catching a connecting train in Pisa at midnight to Nice in to the south of France. And me and my friends have always debated: Have we been to Pisa? And we stood on the uh, the railroad. We were at the railroad station, but we were able to see the whole city. So I still, to this day, I don't know how to address that one. Yeah, yeah, I hear, I hear that one. See, it's, it's a more complicated, it's a more complicated question than it would seem, isn't it? Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Meyer in Brooklyn. Hello there, Meyer. You're on the air. Oh, hi. I wanted to comment on the airplane situation. Yeah, what's your thoughts on it, Meyer? So the way I see it, it's just, Yes, you can do it, but you're inconsiderate if you do. Oh, I, now, well, no, obviously, the, uh, Meyer, obviously you can do it, but, but oh, you, no. your, your view is the, eti- be, the etiquette dictates that you shouldn't do it. Yes, I, I wanted to give you an analogy. Yeah. Um, one is allowed to walk through 
let's say, say Times Square and smoke a cigarette, right? Mm-hmm. And it's crowded, you know? It could be pretty quite crowded. But it's inconsiderate, but you're allowed to. Or actually, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh, the etiquette dictates you. That's basically the view of my step second cousin Scott that you should you are able to, but you shouldn't do it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now on to the on to the next debate. I hate to break it to you, but you've never been to San Francisco, right? Okay, uh, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. And I, I I've always said it by international travel when people have a stopover. Until they let until they got their passport stamped, they definitely didn't were in. In other countries. So that's interesting. So if I was flying uh, to Japan, for instance, and I had a layover in, I don't know where you'd have a layover. Let's say a layover in France. They don't stamp your passport in France? Till you Typically, until you leave the airport, they won't stamp your passport. Interesting. Okay, well, I like that sometimes, barometer. Sometimes if you switch terminals, they might have to. Got but it. Typically, they won't. But, yeah, that's... Make uh, all right, my. You sound like a very seasoned traveler. Where, where did you find yourself doing all this traveling? Oh, so I'm not that experienced, but I've been around. I've been to counting the way that we count that you need a stamp, right? So right. I guess I've been to I've been to Russia, Iceland, England, Israel, Canada. That's yeah, you've been it. around. You've been a lot more places than I admire. Thank you. Uh, w- before we go to break, let me say hello. T- if you want to comment on this, you can. One, two, three, four, five open lines. 800-848-9222. Jim is in New Hampshire. Hello, Jim. Frank, I think it absolutely counts. If you, I had a layover on the way to Las Vegas or on the way to Los Angeles in Las Vegas, and I was there for about an hour in the airport. Now I played um, video poker. And I won seven dollars and eighty cents, and so I now qualify as being in Las Vegas and the state of New Hampshire or Nevada. My wife says no, I don't. I I check it off my list. Well, here's what's interesting about that, Jim. Is see when I listen to you instead of Meyer, that does make sense. And I thought to myself, look. Um, if I'm in the San Francisco airport, I'm eating the local cuisine, I'm drinking their local drinks, I'm meeting people that live there, and I said, what if I go to the gift shop and buy a whole bunch of San Francisco-related souvenirs and paraphernalia to bring home to my loved ones? Then, all of a sudden, I feel like it's more of an authentic visit. I feel like I did visit that city but I, I look, I am sympathetic to the people that say I've never been. But I think it's important for the, the other caller. I think it was uh, either Dan or Igor for the sake of people keeping track, which is now very big to do on social media. I really think we need a societal guideline here for whether or not these trips count. Like you had that layover in Las Vegas. If you had that layover in Chicago instead, you wouldn't have been able to play a slot machine or play video poker. You were only able to do that because of the unique culture and the unique laws that Las Vegas has to offer. The debate continues, Frank. Yeah, indeed it does, Jim. Thank you. And uh, Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Oh, Frank, thank God you're back. <laughs> I missed you. Thank you. I missed oh, you. Uh... <laughs> Uh, reclining my feet back, no, I don't do it. I think it's inconsiderate. And if I 
after listening to Curtis bash you and talk about Don Ho, I had a song in my head, Frank, for the last two days of Don Ho, and my wife wanted to throw me out of the house. I was singing it throughout the whole house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're back, Frank. Well, thanks, Joe. It's great to be back. Hey, we'll continue with your calls in just a minute. I'll tell you about my experience visiting Hawaii. And if you uh, if you want to, we'll read your mail a little bit later this hour. We have some great snail mail selections here. But if you want to send any email, it doesn't have to be positive, by the way. It can be a question. It could be negative, whatever. Uh, I'll try and read as much of it as we can a little bit later this hour. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. want to encourage people to join the Facebook group as well. The simplest way to join the Facebook group is to go to my Facebook page at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And if you follow the page there, you'll immediately get an invite to join the Facebook group. But if you just want to go to the Facebook group itself, you can just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. But we're on the verge of a milestone on the Facebook page right now, not in the Facebook group, but on the Facebook page, where we're just four people shy of that magic number of 5,000. Now, that's a milestone. So um, for anybody that joins the Facebook, uh, that uh, follows the Facebook page, who knows? You could be lucky number 5,000. And if you want to know what's the difference between the Facebook page and the Facebook group, the Facebook page is basically where I just share articles related to the show, the subjects that we do on the show. And that's where I also post the podcasts for what we do on the show. The Facebook group is more about discussion about the subjects that we're covering on the show. They're both great. If you're a fan of the show, you should be a part of both. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. We play. You've got to join the Facebook group. We paste it. We post it in there every morning. Uh, just search Morano Radio fans and haters, and we post all the music in there. All right. Meantime, um, we have commendations coming up at three o'clock. I know you are saying what? I know that's a Monday feature. It's Tuesday. I know it's Tuesday, but uh, we didn't get to be on the air on Monday, so I don't think Curtis did commendations. I know he did denunciations on Friday, and then boy, did I hear about that. But um, we can't start the week without doing commendations, right? I mean, it's a tradition. It's a tradition. Now, 
uh, I did want to give you some of the highlights and lowlights of my uh, of my trip to Hawaii. So I I left on uh, Thursday morning, pretty much right after the show. I went home, packed, and took an Uber to uh, Newark Airport, and then I got to the airport. I think about an hour and a half before. And it was it was great. Uh, I made sure to get there early enough because one of the things that I wanted to try and do on the airplane was sleep. So I made sure to get there early enough that I could get there and have a few cocktails because it's a lot easier, at least in my book, to fall asleep if you're a little buzzed. So I get to the airport, knock back a couple. I think I was having a couple of Negroni or two. Get on the plane and they were very cool at United on this first plane anyway. I don't think they charged me. They gave me, I, I asked for bourbon, and they gave me two little bottles. Uh, by the way, I got a middle seat on that first flight. Now, you know, those middle seats are tough. You They give you so little room. What I like to do is read and write and, you know, think. And, you know, they give you so little room. I didn't even feel like I could break out my book and hold it up because you got so little room. But the thing that I was able to do on that first flight is I think I slept for about three hours. And I also watched a a motion picture, which there was room to do. I'll tell you about that later. So that was the first flight. I had a couple of drinks on the first flight as well. I land in San Francisco, and yes, you guessed it, I found a way to have a couple more drinks at the airport in San Francisco. And when I say a couple of drinks, I mean, you know the servings that they give you on these uh, at these airports and on the airlines. I mean, it's minuscule. They basically take out whiskey and an eyedropper and put, put it in. But it's enough to at least get you a little drowsy that, so that you could fall asleep for the, the, air, the air, airplane ride. So I go on that second airplane ride. Again, I order a bourbon, and they bring me Buffalo Trace, which is a fine, fine bourbon. And so I have a couple of bourbons on this second flight, and I slept almost the whole way. Now, it's not really a restful sleep when you sleep on an airplane. I don't know if anybody else finds that that that's the case, but at least I got to sleep a bit. And I had a window seat for that second flight, not a middle seat. So I arrive there. I get to the airport, and it turns out my my, uh, two of my second cousins— and one of my stepsecond cousins is having dinner at a restaurant right by the airport. So instead of Uber taking an Uber ride to the hotel, which would have been 35, 40 minutes, they said, hey, we got reservations at this famous restaurant in Maui, Mama's Fish House. So I, uh, it's, it, it's really incredible seafood. Fish brought daily by fishermen. So they had started there. They had had appetizers. I went right to this restaurant, Mama's Fish House, which somehow my cousin uh, had scored a, a reservation for, even though it's like a five-month waiting list. So I go and meet them there. It was tremendous. I, it was a little on the pricey side, but if you ever get to Maui, I recommend trying this restaurant, Mama's Fish House. And I had the Arctic Toothfish. Have you ever had toothfish before? I've never even heard of toothfish. It was f- like flaky like a, like a scallop almost. It was really interesting. It's caught from 6,000 uh, feet beneath the surface of the ocean. And then as soon as they get it up to the boat, they freeze it right away. 
and it's from the Arctic. It, it, it's swimming around Antarctica. So it was exciting to try that. And uh, everything there is macadamia this, macadamia that. So I tried this macadamia nut ice cream for dessert, which was also pretty good. And um, so that was great. That was basically the activity for the first night that I went there, which was, I guess, see, you lose track of which night is which. I guess that was Thursday night, basically, because it was six hours earlier than it is here. Then the next day, and I kept my phone on East Coast time the whole time there. I didn't change my phone to local time, which could have been a mistake. But the next day, I'm up bright and early because now my stepmother had texted me. When we were at dinner, she said, do you want to go on a distillery tour tomorrow? And, you know, I could kind of take or leave a distillery tour. If I'm on vacation, I kind of like to just chill out, let things unfold as they unfold. So I said, but but I also don't want to disappoint her. Right. So I said, well, OK, I'll go. It's distillery tour at one o'clock. A pineapple distillery. OK. So then I. um Awake bright and early the next day because at our hotel, there are these roosters all over the place. These roosters are crowing from 5.15, 5.30 in the morning. As soon as there's sunlight, the roosters are crowing very loudly. So I'm up with the rooster, literally, and I don't have an issue with that. I used to work with a rooster for many years. And so I uh, go and start the day, and then my stepmother tells me that they're leaving for their distillery tour at 10 a.m., so that they can go to Costco first. Because this is apparently one of the things that she and my father like to do, is go to different Costcos all around the world, basically, to see how they compare to their local Costcos. I said, no, that's that's it. I'm opting out of that. So I hung around in the area of the, of the hotel. Um, I, uh, you know, I, we somehow found a bottle of bourbon. I brought down some cigars, which we smoked in the courtyard, which was completely unauthorized. We were not allowed to smoke those cigars in the courtyard, and they very politely asked us to stop. And mostly we did until it looked like nobody was was paying attention again. So then at that point, I, uh, you know, proceeded to smoke one of these cigars as well. Now, the activity for Friday night, instead of having a rehearsal dinner, basically they were having a luau. And so the luau – now, this is after a whole day of drinking poolside. I basically slept through half of the luau. They were, there was staff knocking on my door. By the time I finally woke up, I saw – and now, meanwhile, I, keep in mind, my time zones are all screwed up, and I was up with the rooster literally, and I'd been drinking all day. So what I thought was going to be a brief nap at 2.30 or 3 o'clock turned out to be a three-and-a-half, four-hour nap – so I missed the beginning of the new, of the luau. They sent my my cousin to come back to the hotel to wake me, and I made the second half of the luau. But now I'm wide awake, essentially. Wide awake because I woke up at 6.30, 7 p.m., and everybody else is ready to turn in around 10.30 or 11. But the luau was interesting. They tell you a little bit about the history of Hawaii. You get to pick up that that's how they pronounce it there. It's not Hawaii. It's Hawaii. And uh, you, they have interesting dances and music, and it was fun. Uh, that, basically, everyone that was going to our wedding was uh, was there. So then the next day, a lot of the people in our family were up for a surf lesson. They were going for a surf lesson, which I'll be honest, I didn't have 
much of an interest in doing myself because I like the freedom to either participate and not participate. But I wanted to see everybody else surf, so I went for the the I went to watch everybody do the surf lesson, and there were some very good surfers in the group, including my um, my my other brother Alexander, not the one who got married, but my brother Alexander's girlfriend Marley, a very good surfer. And then I was told that basically I was on Nick duty for the day. I was. Um, Basically, he was the groom, and I was going to be with him the whole day on Saturday to make sure he didn't get into too many shenanigans. And then there's all sorts of things that you have to do when your brother's getting married, just like if it's getting married in New York or New Jersey. So um, you have to deliver the flowers to the venue. So uh, my my brother and I had to pick up the flowers in one place, deliver them to another place. Then I still had to iron my suit. There's all. Then there's pictures from three thirty on. So basically, most of Saturday was consumed with day of wedding material. They have a ceremony. Ceremony was very nice, very touching. They get married, and then they do a reception at this place called uh, Down the Hatch, which was very good. We got there around seven, and when you know they had an open bar from seven p.m. till one a.m. And my brother Nick said, look, we have this open bar going till 1. I need you to rally and get people to rally because we paid for this open bar till 1. I said, Nick, I'm not going to let you down. Now, I actually didn't drink much in the beginning of the night because I was doing some joint remarks with my other two siblings, which I think went over pretty well. And uh, then we, um, you know, we, we hung out there for a while, and then there was a little bit of an after party at our hotel. That's that. And then the next day, which was really interesting, we went for a uh, a hike all around. They call it an eco or an echo hike. And we saw a lot of uh, a great um, plants, essentially. It's, I mean, it sounds weird, but it was really cool, including there's this one tree that has roots all over the place that when you walk near it, it's almost like you're walking on a trampoline. The ground is sort of rubbery. So that was that was really interesting. And the guides that took us on this hike were very knowledgeable. See, the day after the wedding, there was one crew who was there who was golfing, another crew who was um, beaching, and then there was our group that was hiking. So I was with the hike group. I forget what you call the area that has all those uh, uh, those plants and trees and everything. It's like an, an, an arborarium or something. That's not the word, but it's a word – Similar to that, so that was that was pretty interesting. Then we um, we we went to lunch, and then I packed up and came home. So that was that was pretty much it. That was my trip to uh, Hawaii. It was really it was interesting. It was beautiful. I don't know. I really missed my son Carmine. I mean, I knew that I was going to miss him, but I had no idea that just being away from this creature that doesn't even really speak yet for two days was going to be so heartbreaking. So. I might like to go back. You know what they call it? An anthurium. And man, I don't know. I think it's an anthurium. But anyway, um, I um, I would like to maybe go back, maybe when my son is a little older and he could participate in some of the activities like uh, surfing and even going to the beach and things like that. But it is a real hike, literally. I mean, it, it is um, basically 13, 14 hours of travel each way, and if you're only staying there a day or two like I did, I, I don't know that it's necessarily worth the stiffness in your back when there are other places. I mean, it is, obviously, if you're going for a family occasion like I went to. But when there are other places a lot closer to your area, 
your time zone, for instance, uh, that are just as beautiful, just as tropical, just as nice, and have just as much rich history as Hawaii does. I mean, I'm glad I went. I certainly wouldn't miss my brother's wedding for anything in the world. But um, I, I think there are a lot of places much closer that can offer a lot of the similar grandeur that Hawaii does. So that was my that was my excursion. And then I got in uh, on Monday afternoon. Uh, my wife, my son, picked me up from the airport. Never been so happy to see my son since he was born. And um, came home. We had a, a dinner. And then I caught up on all the work that I missed uh, during, the, uh, during the four days that I was out for the show. So it was uh, great to be here. Uh, and it's great to be back, though. Uh, 800-848-WABC. We're going to go through your mail straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Oh, when the sun goes down and burns the tar up on the roof, and your shoes get so hot, you wish your tired feet were fireproof. By the way, uh, I just got an email here before we go through the formal email process from Gary, who reminds me that the word that I was looking for that I went on the hike through, and it's a beautiful hike, it was about a two-mile hike, was Arboretum, Arboretum. Now, Gary is uh, the National Grassroots Media Director for the Convention of States. He's pushing for this Convention of States, so... Since he helped me remember the word Arboretum, let's all do him a favor and go to the website conventionofstates.com. Uh, they're trying to get a new constitutional convention going. So it's the least we could do. He's a listener, and he helps me out with words that I can't remember. So why not, uh, you know, why not go to the website and sign up for their information? The other thing, there's a discussion on the Facebook group right now about me ordering the toothfish because I take my dental hygiene seriously, and I certainly do. But that reminds me, I actually forgot to bring my toothbrush to Hawaii. So I ended up spending a big portion of my Saturday morning trying to find a toothbrush, which I subsequently did. And I had a choice. They have this store there. It's a random store, but it's one of those stores that has everything, ABC store, you know. And there was one toothbrush for $2.99, one toothbrush for $4.99. And I don't know what compelled me to do it. Because normally you just go for the cheaper toothbrush. Or after all, you're only going to really need it for two or three days. And then you go back to your normal toothbrush. I went with the $4.99 toothbrush. I was so glad that I did. This toothbrush was great. Was great. So my thanks to uh, everybody that uh, made that possible. Without further ado, it is time for... begin with an email from Padraig Coleman. Padraig Coleman writes, you don't count any place you haven't slept. Otherwise, you're just passing through. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Padraig Coleman. Okay. Uh, this is a, a letter here from John Sharp of Homedale, 
Uh, he writes, Frank, have a great time in Maui. All the best, John Sharp of Homedale. But this is what's interesting about this. The memo is says, hang loose. And then he includes a check for $40. Now, this is not a check. It's made to me, not meant for a charity or anything. So, John, I don't know if there's specific instructions for how I should spend this money. But otherwise, I, I think it's okay. I'm considering this a gratuity. Thank you very much, uh, John Sharp of Homedale, New Jersey. You're my kind of listener. And I will hang on to this to make sure I can send you. Let me take a photo of your address to make sure I can send you a proper thank you note. Uh, boom. Okay. Uh, so that's very kind. All right. Uh, this listener, J.E. Lawrence, writes, Frank, I'd appreciate your thoughts or else. Uh, do let me know you're too busy to read every email, even if it comprises a single paragraph. Realistically, if you're in transit in the airport, you can't claim you visited that city because... You've only seen the airport. In fact, you shouldn't even claim you've been to a country unless you've been living there for a month or two. Oh, that's ridiculous. Remember, too, that when you live in a hotel and are treated exceptionally well enough, that does not reflect the culture and general civility of the people. I know that. But still, it does reflect what it's like to visit in a, a specific country. All right. This is a letter here from, ooh, I like this. It's got a photograph of Bob Grant in it, uh, although it doesn't say who it's from. Um, it's a Bob Grant postcard from when Bob was on WOR. All right. Well, maybe there's a letter that's attached to this that I will find. I will see about that. Well, but that's very nice. Whoever sent me this Bob Grant photograph, I love it. This looks like it's from his first stint at WOR back in the uh, 1970s. Gracie writes via email, I turned my radio on at 1 a.m. Within the first five minutes... Curtis was bad-mouthing you, so I turned him off. I couldn't listen to five hours of that. By the way, I like Curtis. If I've said this once, I've said it a hundred times. Guys, don't take what Curtis says about me seriously. He's just having fun, and a lot of times, there's no truth to it, and a lot of times it is fun. I called Curtis to, from the airport in San Francisco to thank him for uh, filling in for me, because I know it's a lot of extra work, you know? The overnight hours are tough, especially when you're doing it on the weekend. And I think, is he still filling in at noon this week? So he's still doing the noon show. So I know that that's very tr tough for anybody. So I called him to thank him. And he said, trust me, once you hear the things that I have to say about you, you won't be thanking me. Hey, so so uh, honestly, I get why people are upset, but just try and roll with it. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. All right. I got a postcard here. From New Mexico, Madeline in Albuquerque. Dear Frank, Roswell does not look like this. And then she includes a nice photo of what New Mexico looks like. Um, an advance warning for your trip. Now I understand why postcards fell out of favor. I'll stick with email. Madeline of Albuquerque. All right. Thank you, Madeline. I'd still like to visit the other aspects of New Mexico because I have become a fan of, you know, I have become a fan of the TV shows Breaking Bad and um, Better Call Saul, which both take place in New Mexico. All right, I got an email here from, I'm not going to read this whole thing. This is from Joseph, and I don't know if he watched his last name used, uh, Esquire. <clears throat> and I responded to him when he wrote this to me because it was a lot of interesting things about the early 1990s. But he writes, Dear Mr. Morano, I enjoy listening to your late night talk show. The only problem is that I am not getting enough sleep 
as a result of listening to your show. While the show is good for your mind, it may be hazardous to your physical health by contributing to sleep deprivation. The CDC should look into how your show may be a national health hazard requiring treatment to address the problem. It's very nice. I also enjoy listening to Curtis Lewa, but for a different reason. He is hilarious with his Sleewanics and copycat Bob Grantstick. He is a staunch conservative and has some good ideas with regard to the criminal problem that is plaguing our city. However, he is hard to take seriously, especially when he incessantly criticizes you. I know this is really just an act. It piques the interest, the listener's interest and indirectly benefits your show and his. It seems like his critique of you could arise out of jealousy, uh, could arise out of jealousy, but because it is really shtick, and has an entertainment value. I don't think this is the case. However, I am not sure. And then this um, caller criticizes uh, Rudy Giuliani from his mayoralty and points out that this fella, this fellow that wrote to me, he ran for state Supreme Court as a Republican in Queens in a district that the Republicans never usually win and in which this fellow almost done. And then when it came time for Mayor Giuliani to appoint someone to the criminal court, instead of appointing a Republican like him, he instead appointed a Democrat because that Democrat was a close ally of Dove Hyken. So basically this caller, and it was a very well-written email, this emailer, I should say, uh, included a, um, you know, basically saying, oh, well, you know, take everything Mayor Giuliani says about everyone else who's not holier than thou with a grain of salt, because look, he participate in the same sort of partisan politics that all these other guys did. So there you go. He wrote it, and um, you could, you can call Rudy Giuliani. He's happy to mix it up with everybody, Joe. All right. This person writes, I don't have a name on this person. This person writes, hello, Frank Moreno. It's been great listening to your night program. Your style and the topics keeps the listener very satisfied. It shows via the calls of the audience. I hope that in the future I'll be able to tune in again as my vacation and leisure time is now ending. God's love and care be with you and your wife, parents, and other family, co-workers, the station owner, and family, and as many as possible. Enclosed is a small gift to show thankfulness for your great work. And it's a gift card to, looks like to Whole Foods. Oh, actually, it might just be a blank MasterCard gift certificate. So, I, well, that's very nice. I wish I could thank whoever this was. But I will say, if you're going to send a gift certificate to a grocery store, make it Gristidis. Make it Gristidis. That is always the... First rule of uh, first rule of business. Uh, all right, this was an email here from Tom. This was from Ask Frank Anything Day. According to a uh, major poll, seventy-five percent of Democrats believe political leaders condemning white nationalism and very important, but only twenty-three percent of Republicans do. Only ten percent of Democrats, but forty-eight percent of Republicans believe that um, it's either not very or not at all important. Why do you think there's such a difference between Republicans and Democrats on this issue? How important do you think it is? Well, I think it's important to condemn any sort of racism, whether it's people that hate blacks, whether it's people that hate whites, whether it's people that hate Jews, people that hate Asians. I'll be honest. I don't think that white nationalism is the threat that a lot of people in the media make it out to be. I don't. Maybe that makes me naive, and I know that there are are a few isolated incidents which get a lot of attention and may belie the point that I just made. I don't think it's a big point. Uh, I, I don't think it's a big problem in this country. I think, unfortunately, there were a lot of people in the media that wanted to portray all of Donald Trump's supporters as if they were white supremacists that 
inflate the threat of white nationalism and those that subscribe to it. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the people that engage in hate crimes, people that beat up Jews, people that beat up Asians, people that beat up Mexicans, don't necessarily fit in to that white nationalist narrative. And a lot of the hate crimes that are violent, that are committed in this country, are committed not by white nationalists or Trump supporters, but in some instances, in many instances, quite frankly, by minorities. But though that doesn't seem to get nearly as much attention because it doesn't fit with that kind of media-created narrative. Uh, all right. I want to get at least one more, at least two more in here. Dear Frank, while listening to the segment this morning about cover versions of songs that are superior to the originals, I couldn't believe that no one stated the obvious. Whitney Houston's rendition of I Will Always Love You, which blew the shoes off Dolly Parton. Also, you recently stated that you thought the marriage of close relatives would result in children with severe defects. However, it only slightly increases the possibility of that occurring. Well, pause. Do you really want to slightly increase that possibility? I mean, is it so important to you that you marry your cousin or half-sister that you that you procreate with them that you're going to even slightly uptick the possibility of, of defects? Now, trust me, I have some beautiful first cousins and, and, a, and a, a half-sister that's a knockout. I'm not marrying any of them. However, it, it might also propagate good qualities of the offspring. I'll take my chances. Excuse me. Finally, please tell the ladies you work with to stop saying um so often. Uh, Juliet, who does not work here anymore, is not saying it as much as she used to, but Marlena Shivo practically ummed me to death the last time that I heard her. Deb Valentine never says um when she's delivering the news, but the other day when she was telling you about the time a shooting occurred near her, she said um 17 times. These people are professional speakers and should keep a handle on it. Uh, the Phantom Listener, no signature on that email. From that person who really clearly wants to propagate with some relatives of his. Or her. Could be either one. Let me squeeze in at least one more here. This is, um, um, oh, this is, oh, we've done this before. This is this fellow who sent this Coney Island song. This is uh, Corey McGrath, who sent his brother Don, called me on the air. I want to play this song. It's got a couple of good Coney Island songs on here, Matt Blaze. I'm going to leave that to you, and maybe we could play it. Last, um... Uh, that's all that we have time for at the moment. If you didn't get your letter today, we will do it on the next edition of Another Letter from our Listener's Day. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, Before we get to formal commendations, a couple of people that I just want to acknowledge, even if it's not in the formal commendation portion of the program, because it has to do with stuff that happened yesterday, essentially. One, yesterday was the 78th anniversary of D-Day. And if I was on the air yesterday, we would have done a whole big thing about that. Uh, But it really, uh, every D-Day, I try and go back and read as much as I can because it seems like every year there's so much great new history about what happened at D-Day. And the thing that I'm always struck by is how incredible a military expedition this was, but also how young the men and women, no, no women really, the men were that gave their lives as part of this And what a turning point this was in the war. It was really a masterful job by General Eisenhower and by the people that were willing to to sacrifice their lives in order to beat the Nazis. Really just remarkable. My grandfather, who I'm named for, never met. He died before I was born. He served at D-Day. I believe um, stormed the beach, not at Normandy, but at, uh, no, it was Normandy. So he was uh, part of that D-Day campaign, and I've always been very proud of that. So I want to give even more than just a typical pat-on-the-back commendation to everybody that uh, that participated in any way with D-Day. So uh, thank you. Now, it's funny. My grandfather, Frank Moreno, he married my grandmother, Nancy, and she passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, but yesterday would have been her birthday. So I, I always, my grandmother died uh, just a month or two before her 96th birthday. So I guess that was about five years ago. I miss her a great deal. We were very close, and she was very sharp literally until the day she died. Yesterday, June 6th, would have been her 101st birthday. So I always like to think about her on what would have been her 101st birthday. And uh, really, she was a very lucky woman, if you think about it. Not only did she have the opportunity to get to see her children live to adulthood, but she got to know all of her grandchildren as young adults, at least, and some as as older adults. And she developed a relationship, not with my son, because he was born after she passed away, but with all of my cousin's children. So she got to know not only her children into adulthood, her grandchildren into adulthood, but she got to know many of her great-grandchildren as as young adults, at least. So um, may we all be so lucky and be able to have our wits about us at drinking as much scotch as my grandmother did. Because as I've said before, she was somebody that was always a, a big doers drinker well into her 90s. And um, I also want to acknowledge, you know what, actually we'll give him a formal commendation once we start the official commendation portion of our program, which happens to be right now. The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. This is the commendation that I was on the fence about giving. I have to give a commendation to Ryan Long, this rideshare driver from Philadelphia that has now essentially game-showed his way into the record books with this massive winning streak on Jeopardy. He lost yesterday, but... A 16- or 17-day champion won about $300,000, and he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in this Tournament of Champions. I really like this guy, and I know we've seen a lot of Super Jeopardy champions recently, 
the um, Matea Roach, we've seen Amy, and uh, James Holtzauer, Matt Amodio, and uh, I'll tell you, Ryan Long seemed very humble. Not that some of those other people weren't, but for a guy with his intellect and clearly his love of learning who's been through this many ups and downs, and he tweeted a photo of him a couple of years ago where I think he was on the in a hospital on a ventilator. And uh, for him to come back and now achieve wealth and fame through nothing but his wits and his intelligence, I think it's really inspiring, and I'm happy to give him a commendation. I also want to give a commendation to all of the participants and the organizers of Sunday's Greek Independence Day parade. I know WABC had a float in that parade, and I'm sorry I couldn't be there. And I know that uh, our owners, John and Margot Katsimatidis, are very involved in organizing every aspect of this parade. So I watched on one of the airport layovers as much of the parade coverage as I could, and Dominic Carter did a great job. Certainly not easy for him to work Sunday as well when he's working starting at 1 a.m. that night, or excuse me, at midnight that night. So it's a long day for him. But to the Nicole Petalides and Dominic Carter, who co-anchored it, to the thousands of people that gathered along Fifth Avenue, to everybody that participated in the parade with one of the floats, uh, to everybody that organized it, really it looks like a great event that took place this year. And hats off and a commendation to everybody. I also want to give a commendation to a guy who really loved radio. Um, A real commendation to Bill O'Shaughnessy, the longtime owner of WVOX and WVIP. He had worked at those stations for 67 years. And I I met Bill O'Shaughnessy, but I didn't know him well. And this was a guy that really made both of these stations into truly community radio stations. And I still listen to WVOX. My friend Matthew Mary does a show on there. He's been a guest on this show. And it's a great radio station, and it's a great community station. And Bill O'Shaughnessy passed away. It's a posthumous commendation. He passed away at the age of 84. And he's really going to be missed. He began his career at the original WVIP in Westchester in 1957. And uh, this was somebody that was a broadcaster's broadcaster. He was a former president of the New York State Broadcasters Association, a staunch defender of the First Amendment, and a guy who really got radio and understood how important radio was to the community. And he's really going to be missed. And I'm hoping they don't sell these stations. I'm hoping they'll maintain. I I think his son works at one of these stations. But I'm hoping they will maintain these stations in the manner in which they should be. Because um, he was a great man and these are great stations. And that they're the most enduring part of his legacy. I want to give a commendation to coffee. Yes, that's right. You know, you need, you get whiplash with whether coffee's bad for you or good for you. It's good for you one day, it's bad for you the next. Good for you another day, bad for you the next. Well, researchers have now found that drinking coffee appears to be linked to a longer lifespan. Moderate coffee drinkers were less likely to die during a seven-year follow-up period. Now, previously, 
Coffee has been linked to several other health benefits, including less risk of certain diseases. By the way, moderate sugar intake, you put a little sugar in your coffee, that does not reduce the benefits. However, the experts suggest uh, staying away from these high-calorie specialty drinks. These, these are from researchers at the Southern Medical University in Zhangzhou, China. So they found people who drink coffee are less likely to die. The effect is strongest, by the way, in people with moderate coffee consumption. I've been staying away from coffee because my doctor was concerned that it could be linked to acid reflux. But I saw this news. I just had two cups. Delicious. Absolutely delicious. I want to give a commendation to my brother, Dr. Nicholas Morano, and uh, my new sister-in-law, Kat Morano. It was uh, great. She was an incredibly beautiful bride. And uh, Nicholas is uh, very lucky to get somebody as wonderful as a person as uh, Kat is. And you know how we know she's a wonderful person? Not only because she's beautiful and talented and a great professional and uh, very accomplished, but because her mother is a big listener to this show. Anybody that has a parent that listens to this show is okay in my book. I want to give a comment. You know who her favorite, by the way, is? Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. Not surprising. Uh, so congratulations, Nick and Kat. I want to give a commendation to Queen Elizabeth II. I am not really a royal watcher. I, I don't care too much about the royals, but... Queen Elizabeth II, in celebrating her Platinum Jubilee last week, is celebrating 70 years as the British monarch. And at 96 years old, she is the longest-serving monarch in the history of the United Kingdom. Now, that's pretty impressive. I, I mean, you got if the woman doesn't deserve a commendation for that, who does? Commendation to you, Queen Elizabeth II. I want to give a commendation as well to Chris Anderson, who won the Gloucester Cheese Rolling. Yes, they they brought back this double Gloucester Cheese Rolling contest, and they had 25 contestants. It's really interesting. You roll this cheese. It's a race to roll this cheese down a hill, apparently. And the, the, this round of this round du, eight pound double Gloucester cheese came down this hill at a breakneck speed, and these twenty five contestants came down almost breaking their necks in quick pursuit. So it seemed as if it was over before it began, but there was a distinct frame behind the cheese wearing red, white, and blue. In the mad rush at the end, there was no denying who had their hands on the prize. It was, of course, Chris Anderson. He said he was scared before the race had started, but he looked fearless as he came down Cooper's Hill in the cold and damp. He's won this contest before. He's apparently one of the best cheese rollers in the world. He won. He won. Uh, I want to give a commendation to Molly, not our former producer, but who I did reach out to this week, and she never, never emailed me back. Goes to show, you know, she acts like she's a uh, part of our team here and then disappears. I don't hear from her. But I want to give a commendation to Molly, a guinea pig from Hungary, who now holds the record for most slam dunks for 
made by a guinea pig in 40 seconds. Can you believe this? They made such a big deal after that over that basketball playing dog, Air Bud. This is a guinea pig that slam dunked a basketball four times in 30 seconds. And he and she has now dunked her way into the Guinness Book of World Records. Now that is impressive. I want to give a commendation as well to Washington State. They are now the best state economy in the country, according to the personal finance website WalletHub. The study compared all 50 states and the District of Columbia by economic activity, economic health, and innovation potential. And the study used 28 measures to compare states such as exports, unemployment rates, fiscal health, entrepreneurial activity, and jobs in high-tech industries. And they found that Washington was number one, numero uno, the top state overall. So congratulations to you, Washington State. Again, I want to reiterate my thanks and give a formal commendation to my colleague and friend, Curtis Sliwa, for filling in while I was away. I know some of you were irked by some of his comments. I think he's hysterical. I think he's a lot of fun. His comments don't bother me in the least. In fact, I view them as just promoting the show. And uh, it's, <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, even if Curtis is making his show, whole show just talking about me, which is what it, sound like, it sounds like it was, it's not easy to do four hours in the middle of the night and then come back seven hours later and do another hour live and then come back on the weekend and do six hours in the middle of the night and then come back in the afternoon and do another couple hours live and then come back at 9 p.m. and do another couple hours live. So Curtis is almost superhuman in his ability to fill in on all these different radio shows. I, I know a lot of you may beg to differ. But I think he did a great job, and I'm happy to give him a commendation for his role filling in for me the last couple of days. Now, I also, I'm a Met fan, as you know, but I have to give a commendation to New York Yankees superstar Aaron Judge, now with a league-leading 21 home runs. Not only is he on pace to win the MVP this year, but he's on pace to hit more home runs than any Yankee in a single season, including Babe Ruth and Roger Maris. And unlike uh, Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire, I don't think there's any suggestion that he's doing it with steroids. He is now, uh, meaning he's not taking steroids. And he's so humble with it. Basically, he said, I'm not trying to be Maris. I'm not trying to be Ruth. I'm just trying to be the best Aaron Judge I can be. He is now just the fourth Yankee in history to hit at least 21 home runs in the first 53 games in the season. Babe Ruth did it. Mickey Mantle did it. uh, Luke Voigt did it. And judges ahead of where Roger Maris was in 1961, that year he hit 61 home runs. Aaron Judge could very well hit 62 home runs this year. Do you ever think you'd see it? Wow. So a commendation to everybody. Uh, that I listed and to everyone that I referred to. If you take issue with anybody that I gave a commendation to, or if you want to comment on anyone that I gave a commendation to, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. 
This is uh, The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's very nice to go traveling to Paris, London, and Rome. It's oh so nice to go traveling. But it's so much nicer, yes, it's so much nicer to come home. It's very nice to just wander the camel route to Iraq. It's oh so nice to just wander, but it's so much nicer, yes, it's oh so nice to wander back. Ah, yes, Frank Sinatra, truer words never spoken. Uh, There is just something so special about being home, Uh, even no matter how much you enjoy your trip, and that certainly applies to me. 800-848-WABC, that's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joseph in the Bronx. Hello, Joseph. Uh, yeah, just uh, in reaction to one of those letters that you got. <clears throat> yes. Joseph. All right, Joseph. Thank you. <clears throat> you know, it's funny. I can't say that. I'm sorry. Joseph disappeared. I asked uh, Avery, and, you know, Avery's new to the show. I asked Avery if that was Joe, the white supremacist, or another Joe from the Bronx. And uh, he asked Joe, is this Joe, the white supremacist? And he said no. But it was. So I'm not that sorry to see him go. Now, I'll tell you, I got to do something on the plane ride that I don't get to do very often. I got to watch a motion picture. So I saw, you know, they they give you a lot of selections on United about what kind of film that you want to watch. But I slept most of the time that I was on the airplane ride. So I didn't have the opportunity to – so I was only – I only had about two hours left in my uh, trip. So I couldn't watch a longer two-and-a-half-hour drama or something. And so I, wa- I clicked on this movie that looked fun. And I saw the trailer, and it kind of looked like a, a version of Superbad. You remember the film Superbad with um, – Michael Sarah and uh, Jonah Hill. Well, I said, let me click on this book smart. And you know who one of the female leads in this was? It was uh, Jonah Hill's sister, who's now starring in Funny Lady. I think it's, um, uh, I don't remember her name. I think it's, I'll look up her name. But she was very good in this. So this film, Book Smart, it's not a great film. It's a film that you could go, uh, Beanie Feldstein, that's her name. That's Jonah Hill's sister. She's one of the two female leads in this. It's not a great film. You could go the rest of your life and not see this film, and you're going to be just fine. But if you have 90 minutes to kill on an airplane ride and you want to be mildly amused, this film uh, fits the bill. It's a comedy. It's It's the directorial debut of Olivia Wilde. It is very similar to Superbad. It's sort of a girl's version of Superbad. 
And it has to do with two graduating high school girls who set out in their graduation weekend or the day before graduation to finally break some rules and party on their last day of classes. It reminded me a little of Superbad. It also reminded me a little of a film a few years before that called Can't Hardly Wait. And um, it's a little silly. It's, it's more than a little silly. And, you know, there are moments that it's, that, it's, that it's dopey. But I found it pretty amusing. And I found the performances by the two leads in this film to be just great. Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein are the leads. And there are some other supporting roles from actors that you would know. Jason Sudeikis is in it. Um, and uh, Lisa Kudrow is in it. And there's some other folks in it. It was um, Feldstein was nominated, which I didn't realize this, for a Best Actress Golden Globe when this film came out. I enjoyed it very much. I like the pacing. I like the humor. You don't see a lot of comedies like this anymore. It w- didn't seem like it was geared for a Chinese audience, which is all that uh, you know comes out of Hollywood these days. It was fast-paced, funny. It wasn't that predictable. And it was sort of a new spin on an old concept, right? Because, you've, like we've said, with Superbad and um, Can't Hardly Wait and other comedies like this, this coming-of-age comedy, they're all you've been there and you've done it so many times before. But it was nice to see it done a little bit differently. There are some, you know, there's some crude aspects of it. There's no nudity or anything, but there is some sexual humor, which if you're sensitive about that kind of a thing, maybe that's not for you. But I really enjoyed it. I got to tell you, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. It was better than I expected. And when you see a film these days, at least with me, so much of it is just exceeding expectations. So if you're looking for a fun hour and a half film, check out this film. It's called Book Smart. Book Smart. And uh, really well done, I think. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. open lines. Let me say hello to Mike in New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. Frank, I'm sure this is a D-Day shout-out that I'm sure you'll appreciate as a Star Trek fan. The late, great James Doohan, mm, a.k.a. Scotty. Mr. Scotty. Absolutely. Um, he not only, as you know, Mike, but the audience may not, he not only was part of that D-Day invasion... But he lost his finger uh, on D-Day. Are you up on that? I did not know that. Yeah, he so lo- thank you as usual. He lost his finger on D-Day. And there's only one Star Trek episode where you can see his missing finger. And not surprisingly, it's the episode The Trouble with Tribbles, where Scotty is holding a bunch of tribbles, and in one hand, you see that he's missing his finger. I don't remember if it's his middle finger that's missing or his ring finger that's missing. I think it's his middle finger because James Doohan has a great biography, a, a, a great autobiography that I read in which he talks about giving Hitler the finger. And he was very proud of losing that finger because he believed that he did it in the service of combating Nazism. But you're exactly right. He was a Canadian just like Shatner was, is, and um, he fought for the Canadian Army and uh, lost his finger. I always thought, it's funny, I always thought they should have come up with an on-air explanation for how Scotty lost his finger. Like, there's this one episode where Scotty gets bolted by Apollo, 
that alien that was a god, which, by the way, I'm not I think there's a possibility that there are aliens that were confused by early humans as gods. And he's he's bolted by Apollo for standing between Apollo and that young woman that Scotty was interested in. And I always thought it would be funny if he had some damage to his hand and it included the loss of his finger. But they never made it as part of the on-air story role. But that uh, that is a, a, something that's very visible in the episode Trouble with Tribbles. But, yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Mike. Great stuff. Great data. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on uh, anything that uh, that we're discussing, Governor Jim McGreevy will be here at 4 o'clock if you want to comment. Uh, 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, eight open lines if you want to comment. Um, Avery doing a, a pretty good job, I must say, uh, filling in today. Especially we had some... Some phone difficulties earlier. It's always difficult to kind of roll with the punches when there are phone difficulties. There's all these extra elements that that are involved in the phone screening process when there are phone difficulties as opposed to when things are just normal. If you want to email me, you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Twitter. Uh, that's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O, if you want to follow me there. And by the way, I now am very proud to announce that I now have 5,000 followers on the Facebook. So let me give a shout-out, thank you, thank you very much, to the 5,000 follower. Let me see who it is here. Uh, I can never figure out how to work Facebook. Maybe that's why I have so many more uh People on Twitter versus Facebook. Well, whoever is the 5,000th follower, my thanks. I'll find a way to figure out your name and to thank you properly because that's nice. Now, if uh, every single person who follows me on Facebook just invites one additional person to follow me, then we'll be at 10,000 in no time. Wouldn't that be nice, right? Uh, Yeah, so it looks like our 5,000th follower is Kathleen Kirschman. So thank you to Kathleen Kirschman. Honored to have you as a listener. Honored to have you as a Facebook follower. All right. 1-800-848-9222. J- uh, Larry, excuse me. Larry is calling from Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, it seems, it seems we're having trouble getting my name right. I think, what was I, Elroy last time? Um, anyway, I want to comment on that letter, uh, that disingenuous letter about Giuliani. First of all, it didn't make any sense uh, to try to impugn uh, Rudy's uh, Rudy's reputation because he hired a judge that was a Democrat. First of all, I guarantee you that if that judge was not 100% qualified, uh, he wouldn't have done that. And it shows that he doesn't participate in partisan. He's not a partisan, the fact that he would hire a Democrat, because the Democrats would not do the opposite. They would not hire a Republican. Well, that's so not true. Anything, de Blasio you know, did appoint a couple of Republican judges as well. Okay, and also, as long as we're on the subject of Giuliani, I want to say in his favor that he was uh, he was he was basically uh, treated very unfairly by the uh, by the first department. He was not given due process. His property, which was his law license, 
was uh, we, his most coveted property was confiscated, which is contradictory to the Fifth Amendment. You're not allowed to confiscate property without due process of law. And the reason there was no due process is because the facts had not come out about the, the full facts had not come out about the election. How do you accuse a guy of making a false statement? Well, not only that, Larry, not only that, Larry, and I followed this case very closely because I know the lawyers that are representing Giuliani on this, and he's got some of the best. By the way, two, actually, all three of them are Democrats, by the way, and they're very seasoned attorneys, and I read their paperwork, and the situation is so much worse than you describe because not only did they suspend Giuliani's law license, but they did so without even giving him a hearing. Now, um, it, there's n- no right. rational way that you could say that Rudy Giuliani's advocacy on behalf of Donald Trump or his advocacy, you know, questioning the uh, what happened in the election was such a danger to the country and such a danger to the court system that Giuliani was such an imminent threat to all of New York that they had to suspend his law license without even giving him the courtesy of a hearing. And his lawyers, um, who include two former Democratic judges, including one former appellate division judge, they said they looked back and they don't see any record of this happening in the history of New York ever, ever, for somebody getting mm-hmm. their law license suspended without a without so much as a hearing. Larry, thanks for the call. 800. 848-WABC. Uh, we're going to talk with Governor Jim McGreevy at 4 o'clock. It's 1-800-848-9222. Jimmy is in Rockland County. Hello, Jimmy. Hi, Frank. How are you? Um, I heard your interview with Anthony Weiner, and I just think that uh, give the guy a second chance. You had a brilliant, you know, questions for him, and he, uh, I think he took him very graciously. Um, he had some tough ones there for him, and uh, I think you do a great job. I think he does a great job. I appreciate you forwarding my uh, – uh, what I met such a gentleman in Dominic. You you forwarded the uh, my number to him, and I did the tree work for him. What a what a gentleman. Oh, he well, that's nice. A, yeah, he had – His family, they are just, just the nicest people I could ever meet. Yeah, and, um, he had a lot but, of great, great things great to say about you as well. You know, we all, you know, deserve that in life, and that, that's all I want to say. I think that that whole Wiener thing, he's doing a great job. He's so well-spoken. He, he's a brilliant – you know, person on the radio, and he's such a smart man. It's unfortunate that whatever he went through, you know, not to get into it. But hey, he seems like a brilliant guy, and I think the radio station benefits from it. So, thank you, Jimmy. Yeah, and uh, I so, think uh, Dominic's working on getting us out there for a barbecue or something. So hopefully, we can oh, see you when that when that comes to fruition. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. By the way, Ellen reminds me that one of the days when Curtis filled in was um, Curtis's uh, and Nancy's anniversary. So that was very nice uh, that uh, Curtis was willing to fill in even on his anniversary. Very good. Let me say hello to Bonnie in Manhattan. Hello, Bonnie. Hi, Frank. I'm still here. Nice to hear your voice again, and good to have you back. Thank you. Great Um, to be back. Frank, I just wanted to say after working for 30 years for Eastern Airlines and Pan Am, there is a difference between a connection and a stopover. The airlines consider a stopover anything more than 24 hours, and that would be then you would would have visited that city because if you're there for more than 24 hours, you know you're going to leave the airport. If you have a connection, that's within two to eight hours. So if you're sitting in an airport having a drink or dinner or anything else, the airlines would consider that strictly, strictly a connection. And, you know, for many, many years, people always asked to have stopovers. Let's say you were going New York 
to, say, Rome. You could stop in Paris as a stopover, and back in the day, the stopovers were free if it was on the route. Some of the airlines would charge an extra $50 for the stopovers, but that's how people were able to go and spend one or two days in Paris or London and then continue on to Rome. So we did a lot of ticketing, (laughs) giving people free stopovers, and I would consider a stopover of 24 hours or more that you have actually visited that city. Bonnie, I like this, and I think I'm going to adopt your methodology here. So if you're in a city uh, for a a layover or a stopover of 24 hours or more, that counts Uh as a visit. You've got to leave the airport. But if you don't leave the airport, it's only a connection, and that that doesn't count as a visit. Well, I mean, no, it doesn't count as a visit as far as, <laughs> as far as the airlines are concerned. But people on Facebook might like to count. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that, that, that's what makes those folks so dangerous. Uh, Bonnie, great, great call. I love it. All right. Can I ask you one more thing? Please, of course. Did the hotel in Hawaii serve Kona coffee? It, it, you know, they had a few different types of... Uh-huh. Um, of uh, of coffee there, and I had a few of the um, the the different types. I'm, I'll see if I could pull up the menu. There was this great restaurant at the um, at the hotel. We stayed at the um, Best Western Pioneer Inn in uh, Lahaina, uh, Maui, and it was uh, very good. And they did have these specialty cups of coffee that were mm-hmm. native to Hawaii. I don't remember if they were Kona, it was Kona coffee, but I think it it probably was. Well, yeah, here in New York, I mean, the last time I checked up at Fairway, I think Kona coffee was like $45 a pound. I know it's much cheaper in Hawaii if you're over there, but that is some of the best coffee I have ever had in my life. And I had a boss that used to go to Hawaii many years ago, twice a year, and he'd say to me, okay, what do you want me to bring you? I said, you know what I want? I want a couple of packages of Kona coffee. So I used to get it all the time when my boss went to Hawaii. It's fantastic. Mm. And I just want to make one more remark about D-Day. I was brought to tears today at 4 o'clock when I listened to um, Bo Snerdley, to James Golden. It was unbelievable, his opening remarks today, and about the sacrifice that our soldiers gave on D-Day. I mean, it was just so beautiful. If you get a chance, listen to that. And I enjoyed so much your interview with Anthony Weiner. You know, when they announced that he was going to be on the radio, I said, oh, God, what is the cat man thinking? What is he thinking? What? <laughs> what? How could he be bringing Anthony Weiner? Well, Anthony Weiner has won me over. I am just bowled over by his intelligence, how bright he is, how well-spoken. His command of the English language is impeccable. Okay, and I love it when he gets on with Curtis and the two of them banter back and forth, but he has won me over. I, I can't believe how sharp this guy is and how well he knows politics, okay? Not just at the local level, but, you know, in Washington and everywhere else. But the thing is, I have one question for him if I ever get him on the air. Why are you still a Democrat? <laughs> well, okay? it does That's sound it. like his views are evolving a bit. Uh, Bonnie, great call. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I see, I'm looking at the menu to the restaurant I ate at at the um, – at the hotel I stayed at, and the restaurant's called Papa Aina Maui. By the way, if anyone's listening to this show in Hawaii, pop over to that restaurant and sell, tell them Frank said hello. I've made a lot of stops at this restaurant. They're only open from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. now because of difficulties with staffing. But I tried two different types of local Hawaiian coffee, and I'm looking at the menu, and it doesn't look like either of them are referred to as Kona coffee 
They're both single-pore origin coffee. One is from Miranda's Farms, which is yellow, Katura, natural and yeast fermentation, tasting the, with tasting notes of cane sugar, blueberry, and brown butter. That was one cup of coffee. And then another one was from Silver Cloud Far- Farms, which is red Katura pea berry washed with tasting notes of nougat, brown butter, and Rainer cherry. So those were the two coffees that I tried at this uh, particular restaurant. Origin, Origin Maui coffee. I don't know if that's considered Kona coffee or if that's something else. 800-848-9222. Uh, but this restaurant was pretty good, though. I tried, I went there for breakfast one day, and I had the the fish and eggs. And it's almost like steak and eggs, but everything there is very fish-centered, which is great for me because I'm a seafood fanatic, and everything was so fresh. And they serve you this great swordfish with the eggs. It was quite good, I must say. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, quick question about the wedding. Uh, I know my son was married um, on this weekend also, oh. and his uh, my new daughter-in-law's uh, relatives came up from Tampa. Now, they were supposed to fly on Southwest Airlines, and Southwest canceled uh, hundreds of flights. They said they didn't have any personnel. Everybody came down with COVID. Well, so, and there's also a dispute that Southwest is engaged in right now with the uh, baggage handlers. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're just liars, but... Uh, all, all the flights, all those flights were canceled. They had a drive up. Now they could drive. I mean, it was terrible. They had to uh, drive two days. You know, mm. waste the time with that. Jeez. But with your wedding, did anybody have a uh, flight problems for cancellation? No, you can't drive to Hawaii. No, no, but nobody. Uh, everybody was able to fly in with no problem. The only exception was uh, my sister's friend Rachel. No relation to my wife Rachel. My sister's friend Rachel. Uh, she came down with COVID and wasn't able to come. But other than her, no, everybody who was expected to come came, and there was no problem on any of the flights as far as I'm aware. Well, you were lucky. And another question at, at the hotel, uh, did anybody wear a mask? Because I noticed I was in New Jersey at the hotel. I was the only one wearing a mask indoors. Nobody wore a mask. Uh, no, I, 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 I didn't see anybody in a mask, no. Yeah, I'm surprised. Maybe that's why it's spreading so quickly. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Thank you, Neil. 800-848-WABC. Charlie is in Queens. Hello, Charlie. Hey, Frank, welcome back. Great to be back. Thanks. I know that flight. I did it years ago when I was in the military, and um, I went from uh, New York. We stopped in St. Louis overnight. I stayed at the USO, nice free cot, and then on to Hawaii for another 11 hours. But um, during those times when I was traveling in the military, the Marine Corps, I, I was at Kaneohe Bay, I had a simple uh, test. Uh, if I Not so much a visit, but... I considered if my feet touch the ground in a city, that means I can check it off my my list. I was there, you know. So Me- meaning, meaning if they touch the ground outside of the airport. Oh, in the airport. Any, I'm in the city. I'm breathing the air of that. Even if I fly over it, but no, <laughs> just kidding. If I touch the ground anywhere, you know, I go outside for a cigarette. I touch the ground. I'm in that city. I didn't get to see this when I was in the city. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, it just helps me, like, memorize that I've been there. I don't have to go see the site. It's not a big thing. But uh, I get to my destination. And wherever I land, like yesterday, uh, I just flew in from Florida last uh, last week. And they told us there was a storm coming behind us. We got off the ground. We were coming to New York. We were two hours into a three-hour flight. And all of a sudden, blah, 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 there's problems in New York. Uh, personnel, they said. Hmm. Then they said the 
So we ended up diverting to Virginia for two hours, which was a pain. They made us deboard, debark with our bags, hang out, go back on the plane for another hour to New York. When we got here, LaGuardia, there was no rain. There was nothing. And I'm a, don't planes fly in the rain normally? Why did they? The whole Eastern Seaboard was a mess last Thursday night. Anyway, yeah, that's a good, good question. I'm no expert on uh, what flying conditions are, are appropriate and which aren't. Yeah. Well, I'm just asking rhetorically. You know, I was cracking the people up on the plane. Oh, I, I can was, imagine. I was, you sound uh, like the exactly the kind of person I'd like to be seated next to. Oh, unless oh, I'm trying I, to sleep or something. I had a guy in the terminal. We we started talking. He was a real goomba, right? And when I got to my seat, there was a lady. Well, that sounds there. a little racist. No, no. He calls himself a goomba. He was my goomba. We're friends, right? right? Okay. He's a friend. Anyway, the lady sitting next to me looked totally. Out of it, so I asked if she would switch seats with the guy. She did. I even offered her. I, at first, before I asked, I told her, "You're the luckiest person on this plane because I got a whole bag of goodies here, <laughs> candy, you know." Anyway, she did me a favor. She switched seats. Frankie sat down with me. This guy could talk. We had a great flight, even though we were diverted and I was jonesing for a cigarette for, for three hours. But Frankie, he's a, <laughs> he's a great guy. He's an actor. He's in great shape. Anyway, we we laughed. We talked. We did movie trivia. We were we were scrolling on the screen. In every movie we came to, he would rattle off the year it came out, who's in it, who he knew personally because he does some acting. And uh, but you know, getting back to the flight thing, if I set foot in the town, in the airport or not, I was there. That's that. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Charlie. Yeah, I I like the uh, of everything I've heard today. I like Bonnie's barometer the best. If you're there twenty four hours. You visited the city. But like, here's where I, I, I part company. Let's say, like, you know, we go to Cape May. My wife and I go to Cape May a great deal, right? So we, we're going to go again, I think, in August. And you could take the ferry from Cape May to Delaware. Now, we did that one day. We walked around Delaware for an hour or two. We had lunch there. We visited one of the sites there. And then we came back. To Cape May, New Jersey. Were we in Delaware? I think so. I could have sent some postcards from Delaware. In fact, I think I did. So that's where the 24-hour Bonnie barometer doesn't hold through. Maybe you just have to step outside of the airport. I think that's it. Matt, do you have anything you want to add on this? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it this way, even stepping outside the airport, forget about it. If you're in the airport in a city, you're in that city. Oh, you're going that liberal. Yeah, because think about it. Think about this. On a specific date and time, where were you? Right. What yeah. city were you in? That's true. If someone bombed San Francisco while I was in the airport in San Francisco and, you... I, and I died, I would have died in San Francisco. Exactly. If there was an earthquake, for instance, in right. San Francisco, I would have survived the San Francisco earthquake. Exactly. And like yeah. I said, you could point to a specific date and yeah. time and said, at 5 p.m. on August 23rd, 1992, I was in the Chicago airport. In Chicago. See, this is very tricky. Right? Very tricky. Very tricky. Um, fair enough. 800-848-WABC. Leah is in New Jersey. Hello, Leah. Yeah. First of all, uh, welcome home. It's great to be back. Uh, second of all, I called, uh, since you were talking about Hawaii, uh, a number of years ago, my father's favorite uncle gave him a free trip to Hawaii. Oh. Well, that's nice. Yes. Uh, he was stationed in the Pacific during the war, and on the way back, they stopped in Hawaii. 
Well, that sounds great, Leah. I mean, anything, anything. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad. It sounds great. Obviously, you weren't listening. On the way back, they stopped my, in Hawaii. Yeah, my father's was stationed in the Pacific during the war. What was he there for he Pearl stationed, Harbor? Excuse me, he was stationed on an island called Tinian. If you've ever heard of it. Well, so was he there for Tinian, Pearl Harbor? Excuse me, Tinian is the island that the bombers that bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki took off from. That's right, Frank. So you're not so smart. Leah, I'm never, I've never pretended to be so I'm smart. I'm sorry, Mike. I'm sorry. Frank. You're not so, you're not so smart. Who's saying you I'm think smart? Leah, thank you. Um, see, that was one of those calls where, you know, that took a pretty angry turn quickly. Well, hey, again, I've never pretended to be so smart. Uh, so be it. But I guess, hey. Smart enough to know my name's Frank, not Mike. All right, uh, 800-848-WABC. If there's anything else that you want to kind of trip me up on, if I don't know the name of one of the pilots of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki thing, and you want to try and embarrass me for that, you're welcome to as well. I've never pretended to be this great intellect. I want to be very clear about that. All right, uh, very excited, though. Uh, we're going to be able to talk to Governor Jim McGreevy at uh, 4 o'clock this morning. He'll join us at the top of the hour. And uh, I love what he's doing now with prisoner reentry, getting folks that are in prison reacclimated back into society. We'll talk to him a little bit about his journey on uh, going from being the governor of the state of New Jersey to doing some of the other things that he's doing to this work with New Jersey reentry. I think that's great. I have we have so many listeners in prison. I don't share all the letters that I get from prison with you, but every day I get a different letter from prison. Sometimes it's state prison, sometimes it's federal prison. And I am always really touched that we have such a big fan base in prison. All right. Uh, 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. The Time Warp, obviously immortalized in that great film, uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, You know, by the way, as Leah in New Jersey will no doubt tell you, in addition to not knowing the details of the nuclear attacks that took place on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I also don't know very much about a lot of different aspects of popular rock and roll history. That's why we have Alex Barnard here. He's a resident rock star in training. So I'll be honest with you, I know very little about the band Bon Jovi. I can name you some of their songs, but a lot of times I do get them confused with other songs. But they're all a lot of very iconic fans. And I've seen John Bon Jovi, the person, as an actor in a couple of different roles. And he's actually a pretty good actor as well. 
So I would I would say at best I'm a casual fan of Bon Jovi, the 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 music and everything. I mean it's great. They're very successful. You can't knock what's successful. But I remember about 18 years ago, maybe 19 years ago, 18 or 19 years ago, I was working here as a telephone talent coordinator. And I was screening over the weekend, and I think I I was playing some sort of an associate producer role on the weekend for um, Andrew Wilkow. Andrew Wilkow used to do a show here on the weekend, both on Saturday nights and then on Sunday mornings. And I worked on that show. I screened his, uh, his show. And ultimately, one of the fellas that reached out to Andrew through me as the producer of the show was a fellow by the name of Alec John Such. Now, I got to tell you, I would have had no idea who Alec John Such was just because I knew so little about the details of Bon Jovi's music. But I told Andrew about it. And Andrew Wilkow flipped out over this. You know, he w- he was a DJ for a time. He was really into that kind of music. He said, wow, I can't believe Alec John Such listens to this show and so they develop a little bit of an email relationship. And I would deal with Alec John Such a little bit as the liaison between Andrew Wilkow and, and, and Alec. Alec John Such was a founding member and bassist for the band Bon Jovi. And he was an original, an original and a founding member integral to the formation of the band. And... um I got to know Alec a little bit, and just so happened, in March of 2005, I was hosting my little public access television show, Moranovision, and I was going to try and break the Guinness World Record for longest live TV talk show marathon, which I did at the time. That record's been broken many times. But I hosted a 33-hour talk show, and I said, well, let me invite anybody that I know who's even close to a celebrity to come on the show. Now, a lot of the people that were kind of well-known called in. Uh, Ron Kuby called in. Warner Wolf called in. A few others. A couple of the people that I knew personally were kind enough to come and make the trip at some odd hour. Curtis Lee, for instance, made the trip. Bernard Gatz made the trip, came all the way out there to be on the show. Richard Bay made the trip. And I'll tell you, one of the fellas that I was blown away by, that he, even though I, that I'd never met him up until that point, even though he didn't really have anything that he was promoting, was Alec John Such, who in March of 2005 came all the way out for this person that he never met on this public access television show. And people who were really into music, and especially Bon Jovi, they were so excited, because you have to have a studio audience there of at least about 20 people. And the crew and the staff and the other guests was just so excited to meet Alec John Such because he was such a legend and such an important part of Bon Jovi and Bon Jovi's history. And he really did me such a a favor. And I'm sure I sent him a thank you note after that, but it was 17 years ago, more. I never really kept in touch with him after that, even though he was such a great guy and such an enthusiastic fan of talk radio. Well, I was very sorry to see that uh, Alec John Such passed away over the weekend at the age of 70. And the band confirmed his passing on Twitter, and uh, they included his year of birth and his year of death with a Bon Jovi Forever logo above his name. 
So I got to tell you, uh, we don't know how he passed away. He was only 70 years old. And again, the the one or two times that I met him, what he was seemed very youthful and very healthy. Now, again, that was 17 years ago. Who knows what happens in 17 years? But we don't know how he passed away. But uh, he was seemed like a great guy. And that seems borne out in all that the tributes that are pouring out over him over the course of the last 24 hours. So Alec John Such passed away at the age of 70. And here's the last thing that I'll say about him. I'll tell you who was so excited to meet him. And I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. You know who was so excited to meet him was a very close friend of mine who worked on that show as a volunteer, my friend Nicole. Nicole actually was so over the moon to meet him that she flirted with him like crazy. They went out on a couple of dates after meeting at my show that day. That person, my friend Nicole, who volunteered to help me with that show, is now Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis. And now you know the rest of the story. I don't think there was anything more than a couple of dates. I don't think there was much of a budding romance there. But, you know, she talked about how they got along pretty well uh, after meeting at that thing. So, uh, again, for all of his fans, for all of his friends, for all of his family, sincere condolences. Uh, Hey, Governor Jim McGreevy, speaking of well-known New Jerseyans, is going to be here. The former governor of New Jersey... We are going to talk about a wide variety of subjects, including how to reintegrate people in society after they've been out of prison. He's doing some great work, and I'm looking forward to talking with him about it. Uh, I'll I'll take your calls a little bit later as well. If I'm saying anything else dumb, call me and straighten me out. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, if you're up at this time, uh, chances are you might be pretty used to being up at these hours. And I certainly am, or at least as well as as accustomed to these hours as anybody can be. But uh, I am always uh, appreciative when somebody that we really want to talk to is kind enough to make themselves available at this tough hour. Thus is the case with our next guest, the former governor of New Jersey and uh, the chairman of the New Jersey Reentry Corporation. He wears a lot of other hats as well. Former Governor Jim McGreevy. Governor, thanks so much for joining us dark and early like this. Hey, Frank, it's great to be with you. I'm, I'm actually an early riser, not this early, but usually <laughs> I get up at 4.30, so... Um... And to my friend Rick Freeberg and to all my friends that listen to Frank, hello, everyone, and uh, 
It's a real honor to be with you, Frank. Oh, no, the, Thank you so much. I appreciate that. The The honor's all mine. Now, I, hey, uh, because uh, you are kind enough to join us on um, the, the day after D-Day, I know uh, your father was a, v- very, as w- was a veteran of World War II and very devoted to uh, veterans' causes and basically devoted a big portion of his life to veterans' ca- causes for the last, you know, six or seven decades. And I know he passed away recently. Uh, I know how difficult that can be. I'm sorry uh, to you and your family. No. I hope Thanks, you, you guys are doing you know, okay. Dad, yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate that. Dad was um, he was pretty special. He went. He tells the story that he got denied. He he went down. His brother had um, was served in the Marine Corps and was uh, part of the part of the forces that landed. Um, on Iwo Jima. In fact, he was in a volunteer mission because their responsibility was to dig up the mines um, so that the amphibious marine forces could land on Iwo Jima. But the Japanese were heavily ensconced in the, in the mountain, and they were like literally firing down um, on the beaches while these young Marines were trying to dig up the mines so that the amphibious forces could land. And so he, he literally, they, they got the last, they got the last mine, and as he removed the last mine, um, he he died in an explosion. But and he got the the Navy Cross, and and it, it was so much a part of of who my father was, his oldest brother, um, and his dad was you know was a, was a police officer, was a cop in Jersey City, was an Irish immigrant, but so he went down to join the Corps. And um, he was denied because he had a deviated septum. <laughs> and as as life would have it, um, and he was 17 years old. Well, he enlisted at 17 years old. He enlisted at 17, and he knew that there was a a guy that liked to have a drink or two in Hell's Kitchen, who was who was the recruiter for the the Marine Corps. So, as my father would tell it, he he went down after lunch, like at two o'clock. And the guy looked at him and said, you know, you signed up. And, and sure, he and his buddy, you know, and, and, you know, went into the Marine Corps. And it's just, it just having the wisdom to strategically know which recruiter you, you're going before, that always helps you, get, you know, navigate to the Corps. But, yeah, he, he – and then – so he goes to World War II. It's the end of World War II. He's in Guam. And I'll tell you a little – a little one quick little story. So – we're at my friend, um, a local judge, superior court judge, says, I'd love to have your father talk to the guys from drug court. Now, these are guys that are in a diversionary program. They shouldn't, you know, obviously no drinking, no drugging, living the right lessons. And my father goes before them and says how when he's in Guam, the Marine Corps is living on dirt. And uh, in the Navy, they're, like, so much better. They're on wood frames and cots. So my father took it upon himself. And he's describing this. And the judge is there in his black robe, and the guys are there. And they're loving this. And he, he grew up, for, he, you know, he describes himself as a street kid from Jersey City. And then, Frankie, he says, like, you know, he stole a Navy Jeep. And they, you know, they to go back and forth. They had nothing, and they had no air conditioning, so he's stealing a fan. And <laughs> then he's going into this bar, and he's like, whatever. And these guys are loving this story <laughs> about, like, you know, 
and he sees himself as a great Robin Hood, you know, creating some sort of equity. You know, the Navy's on his fancy base, and the Marines are, like, sleeping literally on dirt. And he's telling the story about how they, they told the guys it was raisin bread because there were so many flies <laughs> in the dough. And and these guys just are loving it. And, and the judge, who's a dear friend of mine, says, you know, Mr. McGreevy, thank you for your, your service to the country, guys. Just, like, forget everything he just said about <laughs> Yeah, and they're like, you know, like, move on. And he just says to me, he says, you know, your father was the first speaker that everybody listened to. And he goes, but unfortunately, I said, that's a little Jersey City. Well, that's yeah, very- But he had a great life. And then he reenlisted for Korea and um, and then was a Marine Corps drill instructor. And, um, you know, and then, you know, in his in his years, he, he was really involved in veterans. And if I can just about vets, Frank, because I think this is important for all of us that, you know, one of the, the tragedies, it's, it's so tough. And I think we, we don't understand how young guys today, uh, multiple young guys and gals, uh, multiple deployments, how war especially if you're an 18, 19, 20-year-old, how war impacts. And so what, what we see is, just as an aside, in New Jersey State Prison, and I don't think we're much different than any other state in the nation, there are 8% of the people in state prison are veterans mm. and disproportionately combat veterans. And so what, what we see happening is, and that's why we're doing this whole initiative in New Jersey on veterans, and, and I'm really grateful. I'm grateful to um, Governor Murphy and Speaker Kirkhoff when I was on the phone with him and Senate President Nick Scutari, because part of it is is understanding that these guys and gals come back, and sometimes they're discharged with something called other than honorable. So if not to go into that, but it's worth Americans knowing that there's an honorable discharge. After that, there's general discharge. Then there's other than honorable, then there's bad conduct and dishonorable. But the problem becomes is, and, you know, and I have great respect for an admiration for the military, but if they want to discharge somebody and for whatever reason, like I get it. But what happens is the VA benefits are so closely linked to the discharge status. So we had cases where a young Marine was handling body parts, two tours of duty in Afghanistan. He literally, Frank, and I'm not saying like this is okay, but he, he smoked a joint, literally one joint. He comes home to New Jersey just before he takes his final physical. They find THC, which is the um, Right, the active the ingredient in marijuana. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, the active ingredient. And they discharge him with an OTH. So that means this young guy, you know, he's like, he's, he's, he's virtually, you know, he's just a young guy, gets discharged, Frank, with literally no benefit. Mm. And no. so, and that's, and all that I'm saying is, and like, and I get the, God bless the core and, and all the branches and their rigor, but it's, you know, especially in an era and, you know, we do a lot of guys, obviously, focus on prison and addiction. But, I mean, there's a reason why the number of veterans is so high. It's higher in prison than the general population because a lot of these guys and gals come home and they don't have the support. So whether it's 
you know, and it's just also, you know, my father's idea of, of a priest was <laughs> going to Catholic confession. But I mean, the, but the point is, is that he, people need mental health support. No, no doubt about need, it. And and so all that we, I mean, what we do, we, we have a great program where we get guys and, and just as an aside, and this isn't an academic, this is reality. Um, the highest rate of suicide is among veterans. Mm. The no. highest rate of homelessness is among veterans, and the highest rate of mental illness is among Iraqi and Afghanistan veterans. And so it, it's just, you know, this is reality. And so all that I'm suggesting is coming back from war. People have to understand that we need to support our vets. And even if a young kid, young guy, young gal, if she or he makes the wrong decision, we still have to support them. Because I, we were just with one fellow yesterday. He went into the Marines, came out, um, did, did, did drugs, and then, you know, what happened is didn't get any support, and then spends almost a decade wandering in the wilderness. And so, you know, our sense is, You've got to help the. You got to help these people who who put on. And remember, this is, these are all volunteers. Right. They volunteer to serve our country. Right. So you got to help them. No, uh, uh, well said. And uh, we're talking with uh, former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy, now the chairman of uh, the New Jersey Reentry Corporation, which we're going to talk about in a second. But I, and I will say of your your father, someone who was a great admirer of your father's, uh, and he didn't care for you, quite frankly, was Bob Grant. And the fact that a the, lot of those, <laughs> yeah, the fact that Bob Grant would get so excited about seeing uh, your dad at the Rio Diner in in Woodbridge whenever he'd walk in there. And um, even while, you know, he so detested your politics, you know, it says a lot about uh, how your father could win over people to causes that they that they both uh, agreed upon. Now, I want to talk to you. By the way, my father loved Bob Grant. And, you know, and, and, and he would talk and they were just, I mean, at the Rio Diner, it was so classic Jersey, like the diner, the good Greek diner, you know, and it's, it's, it's like a family. It's an extended family. It's, it, you know everybody. Sure. You know everybody from the community. You know everybody from, from you know, church. And it was just but a pop grand. He would knock my socks off every <laughs> other hour. I'm like, Dad, can you talk can you talk to him over like the turkey sandwich? <laughs> yeah, like, like ah, yeah. you know, I, I I love what you're doing with uh, the reentry corporation, and I want to talk to you about uh, how you came to be doing that and what the next steps are aside from changing this formula for how veterans get care if they've made sure. a mistake in their military career. But a lot of our listeners, obviously, I think, may remember you from your meteoric rise up the ladder of New Jersey politics, state legislator, mayor, uh, governor as a very young man, and then ultimately the scandal which led to your resignation. Uh, I know you've been doing some work with the city of Jersey City for, uh, until a couple of years ago. You've also gotten uh, very involved in the Episcopal Church. What else have you been up to over the course of the last 18 years? For our listeners who remember you from essentially your resignation speech, and I know you've done some great appearances on the Cats at Night show as well. I always enjoy those appearances. What have you been up to for the better part of the last two decades? Oh, Frank, you're more than generous. No, I, I think I've you know, been trying to spend my time, um, 
You know, when I was mayor of Woodbridge, I used to go into Rollway State Prison. And, um, you know, I'd be there, Frank, and I'd see the guys. And there was a great program called The Lifers. I don't, you know, it's not around anymore, but they would they, they would bring young, young, typically young men into, into the prison to talk to them about trying to straighten out their life. And what I, what I realized about these guys is, um, you, you know, for a lot of them, they had made a, a terrible decision usually early on in their life, and um, they were paying for it with a huge swath of time. And and then you know I I think as I get older and I you know I had been a prosecutor and I had been you know in politics I just realized in my my own life that you make mistakes in life um, and you know I believe that we all make mistakes um, but it, it's it's what you do with those mistakes and and for a lot of guys you know when they come out. What do they do? So, you know, what I've been doing with my time is trying to work with people as they come out of as they come out of prison. And, and you know, for some of the guys, it's football time, right? It's, it's, you know, significant time coming out. And, you know, you have the young guys, you know, the frequent flyers and kids, unfortunately, involved in gangs. But for the older guys that that I respect that come out after huge periods of time trying to help them put their life together, these are guys that, you know, the streets have changed. Um, phones have, you know, there's, there's not even a flip phone anymore. There's an iPhone. Mm. Um, they have a certain wisdom to them in life, but they have to get a trade. And so they they want to know what they can do. And uh, so we have a training center and we offer uh, CDL and HVAC and welding and Cisco certification. But that's that works if you're like in your 40s or 50s, but, right, but not in your the 70s. older guys, it, yep. it's, it's tough. It's tough. And so we, you know, Frank, we work with them, you know, even Frank, to get an ID. You know, so if Frank opens his wallet right now, you probably get your license. You probably have, you know, um, a, a couple of credit cards. You may have some ID. You may have a, a Visa card or a bank debit card. But if you're coming out of prison, and you only have a card that says NJDOC, New Jersey mm. Department of Corrections, or NYDOC. I mean, it's it's almost impossible, you know, with that card, you know, to to secure an apartment. It's almost impossible. You you need a at least in Jersey, you need a MVC Motor Vehicle Commission uh, ID card if you want to get you know even benefits to hold you over until you get a job and you get settled. And so I, I think it's, for any of us, um, if we were dropped into any city, any community, and, and, and some of the guys, you know, it's just like I've done this work, and I've, you, you spend really great time with some of the people that I find in my life have been willing to walk the walk. And I, I'm not, like, I'm not ponies and rainbows, but, you know, our Lord says, those of you go without sin, cast the next stone. I mean, part of this is understanding that so many guys I see, and I always say this, you know, we just had, you know, uh, UPS hire like about a month ago, like 62 people. We, we work with ShopRite. We work with Wakefern. We work with all of these companies that, 
literally hire hundreds of our guys and guys are lined up around the block, like wanting to work um, because they want to move on with their lives. And it's just, it's just really, it's, it's, it's a really good feeling that when you see people help them to change their Mm -hmm. lives, but you have have to help them give the tools. So the tools are, um, you know, identification and ID, MVC ID, cleaning up the legal wreckage. Somebody's used your ID. Somebody may have an outstanding warrant from you had a ticket that turned into a warrant that turned into, you know, that's out on the street. Um, so it's cleaning up the legal wreckage. It's connecting people, Frank, to to medical and behavioral. I mean, a lot of these guys, I mean, not for nothing. I mean, medicine in, in prison, people don't understand that prisons aren't hotels, right? So if, if Frank and I are in a particular hotel and then Frank, God forbid, you know, has a brutal, you know, whether it's a toothache or whether it's a medical condition, you leave that prison, Frank, and mm. you go stay overnight, like in Trenton at, a, at the hospital, you lose your cell. You lose your cell, you lose your bunkie, you lose everything. So healthcare becomes something, especially serious healthcare, especially surgery. Right. I mean, we've all had like maybe one surgery in life or maybe two surgery in life when we had to stay over into a hospital or stay late into the night. I mean, that, by definition, disrupts the entirety of your life in prison. So we, we work with healthcare. A lot of our guys, unfortunately, addiction. And, you know, I, I grew up and I was blessed. I had the two most phenomenal human beings, parents I was blessed with. But, Frank, you know, I always thought, you know, addiction was something that, you know, bad people do. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's sort of naive and, and – and, um, but, you know, working in this space, and I had the pleasure of working with women for, for four years, and, and, and these young women would tell me, you know, that – you know, they were sexually assaulted, they were raped, they were, and, and and one young woman who I was really partial to said to me, she goes, Jim, I took drugs because life was just that tough. And and she was a beautiful young girl. Um, she was a beautiful young girl. Her father was an Italian, her mother was African-American. She, and she grew up in Camden in public housing. She wasn't accepted because Back at the time, she was biracial. She she never did anything violent, but she joined because her mother was strung out and lost her house. She joined a gang to survive. Mm. She said, Jim, she said, like, you know, if I didn't belong to a gang, she goes, I, like, I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have anything to eat. She goes, she was like, she was like 16 years old. It's all I knew. And, and you know, and the gang did. I mean, obviously, the gang was, was did bad things, atrocious things, but she, you know, eventually she got, we got through all the legal and the criminal and, and, and people testified, but then long and the short of it is she, she goes, she gets her two daughters back. She goes to community college. She manages a pancake house and, and like somebody helps her and she makes the right decision. So for, I just see is just like, you know, I was blessed and I said immeasurably blessed to know God willing, you know, have somebody help me in the decisions of my life um, when they could, or when I was willing to listen, but so many young people don't have that. Right. And, but, but I think, Frank, I think human beings are human beings. I think we all search for belonging. We search 
especially when you're young and you know, you're talking about 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and I think kids, especially boys, are maturing so much later today. But they want to belong, and, and they want to belong so badly, whether it's a gang or it's a membership, that they're willing to make, you know. And, and so, I mean, the old things, like I remember my father talking about the police athletic league and, and, and even the, you know, the, the, the presence of the Boys and Girls Club or those community organizations, unfortunately – you know, they've been hit, whether it's the economy yeah. or no. other circumstances. But it's having people, you know, whether it's a teacher, whether it's somebody in your life that that espouses, that helps you realize you're better angels. And so what I see in prison is I see people that have made bad decisions. And, and often they're the first to say it, but they want to do something different. But, you know, just – and I know this might be a crazy notion, but spending – you know, 20 years in prison. I mean, and, and and maybe there's that small percentage of persons that never want to reclaim their lives. But from what I, what I have had the pleasure of knowing is overwhelmingly women and men um, made a decision. And it was the, it, uh, I'm not saying it was the right decision, but it was the best decision they could have made at the time with the level of thinking. And, you know, if they had different circumstances, they might have made a, a different decision. But but my my role isn't to be their their priest or their minister or their rabbi. My role is to help them integrate, to live healthy, law-abiding lives. Is to get work, and I'll 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 just leave you with this: whether it's so, it's ID, whether it's legal, it's medical. So it's it's you know trying to stay sober and where people candidly are suffering from opioid addiction. And I could talk about that for, for six years because so much of what we do is in the addiction space. Um, we provide medication-assisted treatment, suboxone, and support. And then in addition to that, it's linking people to housing. And then it's also employment and training, which is so important, Frank, is, is giving people the opportunity, as my father would say, the best social program in the world is a job. But you can't get people a job. And, and that was the old way to get reentry is, you know, first thing, come home, get somebody a job. But, Frank, before they get a job, they have to be settled. Um, they have to have a home. <laughs> not, I'm not talking about like a like – a, Right, I'm not a mansion. They have to be secure. Yeah. Exactly. They have to be – whether it's an apartment. I mean, it's rough. I'll just tell you this. I have friends of mine who do the Lord's work and running shelters – it's rough living in a shelter, trying to go to job, um, worrying about your stuff, or in some shelters, you have to take your stuff with you. So it's housing, and so then lastly, it's employment and training. So after you get your ID, after you get your medical, after we help you clean up the legal, after you know we give you opportunity with social workers to get all your benefits, whether it's GA, SNAP, Medicaid is important mm. because if you have a history of addiction and you're taking Suboxone so you don't go out and use Right. If you, can't afford your, the, if you can't afford the drugs, then forget about it. You'll go exactly. back on drugs. 
Yeah, uh, no, I, I absolutely get that. If people just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with uh, former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy. He's with the New Jersey Reentry Corporation. We haven't even scratched the surface of the kind of programs that uh, NJ Reentry offers. If you want to learn more about them, you can go to the website njreentry.org. That's njreentry.org. And, Governor, I'm very interested in this topic. I could talk with you about this all day, but there's three points that I want to ask you about before we sure. let you go. One, a lot of people are listening to this show right now, and I get these emails after every segment that I do that's geared towards inmates and former inmates, and it's some version of this. It's, look, I work so hard to abide by the rules, to uh, provide for my family and for myself why should I spend any time, any money, any thought instead of providing for people that are doing the right thing in life, instead making life any easier for people that made a choice that ended up sending them to prison? Explain to those folks, the folks with that mentality, why it's so important that folks that have been in prison are reintegrated successfully into society. Into society. Well, Frank, it's a great question, and, and typically what I do, and I have a, you know, by the way, you know, our, I'm blessed to have a board, a completely bipartisan board, or I say nonpartisan board, I mean, Republicans and Democrats, I have, like, great leaders in the community, faith leaders, but what I do is when I have friends like that, typically I have them hang out, um, even if they give me a couple hours with our guys and gals. So I think, you know, Jim McGreevy can give you all the philosophizing and, and just from my experience. But I, I love for them to listen to these guys and and they'll like begrudgingly, you know what, maybe you're right. And you, you know, what what I see is, I mean, from a strictly from a um, from a numbers argument that you have this small percentage of the population that has obviously done um, damage, you know, uh, whether it's property crime, whether it's personal crime, whether it's cost, cost to the court system, cost to the prison system, et cetera. So from a utilitarian perspective, just from a pure financial perspective, if we can stop this, right. this aspect from committing crimes again, it's financially, it's it's a benefit. I mean, so the, so if you were look, if you were a social scientist looking at whether the state of New Jersey, the United States, and you could say, you know, nationally, our statistics on recidivism are awful. But you know, it's it's oh, it's over two thirds. It's it's over sixty six percent. It's over seventy percent. You know, come into the system, go out of the system, come into the system, go out of the system. It's like super utilizers right. in prison. Yeah, and, so and, and, it, if you care about, even if you don't care about the people that are in prison or have been to prison, if you care about things like public safety or taxes, it's even more yeah. important to have these folks integrated back into the into the system. Also, you... Um, I can I make a human argument? Please, Because yeah. that's not why I do it. I mean, like, you know, when we use Salesforce and we have, we have, we have 14,000 clients, and, and we use Salesforce, which is a great instrument, and we sort of people's criminogenic history and people's um, medical history and people's social history and, and people's employment history. And we record all of this data, and we work with great institutions. We work with the State Parole Board and participate in the United States Department of Justice, if I can shout them out. 
for the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We had a, a great grant, Swift, Certain, and Fair, where we help people get back from addiction, get employment, lead productive lives. But there's also, Frank, the human factor. And for so many, and I go back to like the Ronnie and Jack McGreevy factor, for so many of these guys and gals, and for the person who says, I play by the rules, I've done it right, I've raised my family, I say, God bless you. But I'll say this to you, somebody taught you to do that. Mm-hmm. Probably your father, probably your mother, probably your grandparents, and maybe it might not have been your biological father, but somebody taught you values. Somebody taught you the difference between right and wrong, and somebody helped you along the way. And what I see is for so many of these young people, it's their, you know, it's, you know, the chaos of the street. Yeah. Uh, And so what, you know, that's what I believe is if we can correct this. And I'll just say this, Frank, we run a really tough program. I mean, dad, my dad was a Marine Corps DI. We don't want a light program. And a friend of mine says, someday you're going to get, your, your mouth is going to get cracked. Because we, because I treat these young guys and gals with the same level of expectation. Look at, stand up straight, act properly, take off, you know, the hat inside, you know, stand up when you meet somebody, shake their hand. But for, you got. You have to be taught this, right, uh, Governor? I got. I, I got to ask you about two more issues before we run sure. out of time here. One is I have to take advantage of your political expertise. You've run in a bunch of elections in New Jersey. You've uh, won most of them, lost one or two. But um, today is primary day in the state of New Jersey. Now, I'm a New Yorker, but I'd like to think I'm pretty attuned to, you know, political affairs all over the country. What I've never understood is why in New Jersey is it so difficult to win a primary election running what they call off the line? In New York, for instance, candidates run in primaries and beat – the hand-picked candidate of the county organization, Democrat and Republican, all the time. Why does that so seldom seem to happen in New Jersey? I've always wondered about that, and I think you may be in a unique position to answer that. Well, I, I just, you know, you know, Frank, the line is the line is the line. And I, I you know, my whole life, you know, you, you run trying to get the line. So the line is the organizational support. So to New Yorkers, it's running with um, – you know, the local county committee. So basically you bracket, you bracket, you the line, it's top of the line, all the elected officials to the bottom. And so everybody goes out there and traditionally supports the line. Now I've been kicked off the line and obviously my God, I, I was, I was an assemblyman. I got kicked off the line because of redistricting. And that's when I became mayor of Woodbridge, which is as my Irish grandmother would say, God works in mysterious ways. I went door to door to the entirety of Mayor Woodbridge, knocked on doors, and it was like probably the greatest job of my life. But, I mean, what happens is in politics in New Jersey, the organization, whether it's the Democratic organization, the Republican, Republican organization, they bracket. And so it's from the top of the ticket, that endorsed candidate, all the way to the bottom. And so – and usually, you know, they take a predominant, you know, whether it's A-line or B-line, Republican or Democrat, um, so that everybody who's running with the organization has a line. So it's not the scattered helter-skelter that you see in certain states. Yeah, I just I've never understood why the individual voters seem to adhere, even the voters that uh, can't lambaste politicians and political leaders enough 
they always seem to adhere with whatever the line is. L- last question. Remember, remember, you got to remember, Frank, what God, what Governor Burns said that you know when he when he died, he wanted to be buried in Jer- buried in Jersey City so he could stay active in Democratic politics. <laughs> so, uh, his, 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 like at least his other Brendan's other great line was that you know he now he knows that he's no longer a governor. And I said, why is that governor? He said, when I wave at people, they wave back with all five fingers. (laughs) Finally, Governor, I have to ask you about this. You know, um, you always hear so many stories about people finding Jesus in prison, and that sometimes gets mocked as, uh, oh, you know, Jesus is always hanging out in prisons. Why does he hang out outside of prisons? And I actually think there's something, too, when people are at a low point in their life they do look for answers beyond themselves. And I'm wondering, you've mentioned, you know, your faith and God a few times in the course of the last 20 minutes. I know you, you know, actually got a master's in divinity and became much more involved in the Episcopal Church, you know, over the course of the last two decades. Did your downfall as a politician bring you closer to God or do you think religion helped you manage that crisis in your life a little bit better than if you didn't have faith in your life? You know, Frank, great question. And by the way, I, I spend now with, you know, sort of this point in my life, I sort of go to God rest his soul. I mean, I, I would go to 12 o'clock mass with my father. And, and so I have, as, as I said to a friend of mine, you know, when when you grow up in an Irish Catholic household, you have that permanently in 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 your heart as well as in your psyche. Um, but no, it was a, it was a source of strength. So you know what you know. There's a great book Joseph Campbell um, who wrote this book called The Hero's Journey, and Campbell writes that we're all on this hero's journey, right? We you know we we grow up and and a lot of uh, fancy uh, media moguls copy. Campbell, you know, whether it was, I'm not saying they, 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 they copied his words, but they copied his ideas. And I mean, George Lucas, Star Wars, the whole notion of that, you leave home, you go out on the journey, you meet good guys, you meet bad guys, there's a moral test, you cross the abyss, and then you come home. I would just encourage you to people to look at it, something called the monomyth. And that the notion that we're all on the hero's journey, whether it's Frank or Jim or anybody listening, whether you're sitting in prison or whether you're, you know, have one of those fancy corner suites in New York City, we're all on a journey. We all have a story. Frank has a story. Jim has a story. Everybody listening has a story in their lives. And and he would argue, Campbell would argue that it was important to know that you have a story, right? To know that you're aware of that story. Like you grew up where were you were born. Where, do you, where did you live? Where did you go to grammar school, high school, your first job? Maybe the first time you committed a crime. Maybe the first time that you did a drug or you, the birth of a child or whatever. We all have a story. And th- then the next part was, Frank, is that we have the capacity to change that story. And so David Brooks, and I'm a David Brooks freak, um, writes for the New York Times. He talks about you know career virtues and what he calls eulogy virtues. And I think what happens for me is, um, you know, I I, I went to um, I, when I after I came out and I resigned, I went to a friend of mine. And I said I want to talk to the oldest Jesuit, the wisest guy, 
And a friend of mine was a priest gave me to this uh, doctor who was the dean of psychiatry at Albert Einstein. And this guy was just was just brilliant. He was like I, I thought he he sounded the way Moses, and I said this with the deepest reverence. He he was just so wise. And he said to me, this was a great gift. I'm like, <laughs> I lost my job. I lost everything. I said, all right, doctor, how is this a great gift? He said, you found out early enough in your life what's important. Mm. And he said, you know, so what's important? At the end of the day, I mean, you know, you just talked and you were kind enough to talk about my father. And, you know, I, I literally, you know, I, I saw him in those those last days, but he had a full life. He had a full life. He had a wonderful marriage. He had a wonderful family. He he gave to his community every day. He cared about people. It wasn't about himself. It was about service. And I can go on, but it's just like you know, the honestly, you know, I was a young man in a hurry. I wanted to to get ahead politics, and you know, I was also wrestling um, with my own. Um, both my sexuality and my own demons, but I, I will say that faith helped me so much clarify. I mean, so it's at the end of the day, my grandfather had a great line: "There are no U-Hauls behind hearses." Right? <laughs> you know, you go into the world naked and alone, and you leave. And I, I think what for me was, and everybody has, you know, there's an old. Um, a friend of mine said to me that everybody has a God. Um, everybody has a general ordering direction. Whatever it is, we, we whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's power. Um, you know, in the in the Hebrew Bible, they would be false idols. But it, it's it's to have the God of our understanding, or to have what Lincoln would say, to follow our better angels. And, and, like, you know, you talked about Bon Jovi and the sad death of Alec before. Like, I see Bon Jovi's wife, Dorothea. Um, she, she does so much good. There's something called JBJ. She 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 takes care of. And, like, mm. you know, and John is a great guy. Go- but, Governor, I actually I, I have to actually end it there on, on that note. But I, oh, let's continue this conversation in the future right. uh, because it's an important one to have. I love what you're doing. And if people want to learn thank more about you, Frank. And can I give out a shout-out for Margo? Oh, please, please. If there's one person, I'm not going to interrupt. The great women that do so much for the community, that give back. So anyway, that's that's the only message that I want to have. Amen. At the end of the day, you understand, you know, when when, you're facing that, what's important in life. And God willing, it's, it's your family, it's service. And to do the next right thing, Frank. So much. This has been the best morning hour I've had in a <laughs> Governor, whenever you're wrestling with insomnia, please call in, Governor Jim McGreevy. Thank you All very, right, very you. much. Uh, check him out. Uh, NJ Reentry Corporation. Uh, you can go to their website, njreentry.org. And uh, if you want to, by the way, thousand dollar minute. If you think you have what it takes to answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds, be the seventh caller right now to one eight hundred eight four eight. WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We'll give you an opportunity straight ahead. WABC.
Speaking of Bon Jovi, that's uh, Bon Jovi featuring Alec John Soch uh, doing Bad Medicine. And uh, as I mentioned, today is primary day in New Jersey and a bunch of other states. But uh, I know in the heart of our listening area, uh, longtime Congressman Chris Smith is uh, up for re-election. And um, he's facing a few challengers that are taking issue with his vote for the infrastructure bill. California's got a primary today. I'm eager to see what happens in Los Angeles because it looks like this Republican, former Republican billionaire that's running could actually make it to the final two, may even finish first. Uh, it goes to show you in L.A. How, how people are fed up with that crime issue out there. Uh, so that's certainly going to be something we're going to keep an eye on, and then we'll have you have full analysis tomorrow. We have something else planned special for tomorrow. I'll tell you what that is in just a minute. But first, the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer ten questions correctly in one minute, and you could win one thousand dollars. Here's your host, Frank Morano. That's right. Time for the $1,000 Minute, where if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you, too, can be $1,000 richer. Let's meet today's contestant, Eddie, in Ocean County. Hello, Eddie. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, you've called before, Eddie, so we know that you're a listener to this show. You you know the rules. You ready to go? Yes, I'm very familiar. Okay. Uh, the timer will begin after we ask you the first question, and if you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next question. What is a card game that you can play by yourself? Eddie? I'm thinking. um, You could play it solo. You could play it solo. Hmm. Starts with an S. Don't need anybody. Saltier. Okay, name an ocean. Atlantic. What season of the year, what climate season starts this month? Um, spring. For, for, uh, summer, sorry. Who became president immediately after Richard Nixon's resignation? Gerald Ford. Uh, who directed Saving Private Ryan and Jaws? Um, I don't know. All right. Um, so that was Steven Spielberg, Eddie. Eddie, I'm going to put yeah, you I'm on sorry. hold. So That's okay. You know, I didn't think Solitaire was going to trip you up so much. I thought that was going to be yeah, a pretty was, easy question. I don't. Yeah, I don't play Solitaire often. I, you know, I was thinking, oh, I play like games with other people. You know. Well, I, I guess you're more sociable than many of us, Eddie. Um, all right, so you got four questions right, uh, so that's not enough to give you $1,000, but I'm going to ask you to go on hold and talk to Avery, and I know that's a struggle, but if you give Avery your information, he will take your address and uh, he'll give you uh, a prize of some sort, a consolation prize, or uh, we're going to send you a hat or a shirt or something. 
If you want to get some other side of midnight merchandise on your own and pay for it, you can do so by going to WABCRadioStore.com. There's WABC Radio, radio that's WABCRadioStore.com. There's all sorts of neat merchandise on there. And if you um, have a favorite personality, whether it's me or someone else, chances are we have some really cool stuff. Uh, for based on whoever your favorite personality is. There's jackets, there's shirts, there's hats. I've bought a ton of stuff on there. It's all great. And uh, if you use the promo code FRANK15 when you order, then you'll save a 15% discount. I wouldn't mind it if we could lead the league, as it were, in having merchandise sold based on this show. It'll send a message that, you know, still some people that like this show. We're actually doing very well uh, with the merchandise and the podcast, so keep at it. By the way, if you ever miss any portion of this show, you can subscribe to the podcast. The best way to do that is to search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano on any podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever the case may be. Every day I see a different article about how podcasting is big and how big podcasting is. Um, my, I was with my one of my cousins the other day. And another one made the reference to, oh, my mother was saying how she listened to your podcast and had XYZ on. Well, my other cousin interrupted and said, no, no, it's not a podcast. It's a radio show. And I said, please, Andrea, it's both. We're a podcast and a radio show. So you want to make sure you follow and subscribe to The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano on every podcast app. This way you get the show downloaded directly to your phone each and every day. Now. Before we get to 15 seconds of fame, let me tell you what's in store for for tomorrow. We're trying something new tomorrow, trying something different. We're trying something that I hope will be fun. Now, it may also be an unmitigated and total disaster. Tomorrow, Wednesday morning from 1 to 5 a.m., I have no idea of the guests that are going to be on this show. I have no idea how many guests there are going to be. There could be one, there could be two, there could be three, there could be four, there could be five, I guess. I have no idea who's coming on or what subjects I'm going to be discussing with them. The guests are going to be booked and determined, hopefully they're interesting, by a committee headed by our head booker, Jennifer Grodd, with Alex Barnard and Matt Blaze offering their two cents as well as to who should be booked. So I am not going to know who the guests are tomorrow until the interview begins. Not going to know their name. Not going to know their title. Not going to know what I'm going to talk to them about. So if you want to, if there was ever a danger of me looking really dumb, although I guess Leah in New Jersey proved that I'm capable of looking dumb even when I do know who the guests are. But if there was ever a danger of me looking really dumb, it's tomorrow. Although, who knows? Maybe it'll be our best show ever. Why are we doing this? One, because it's fun and it adds a little bit of element of unpredictability. You know, you just never know what's going to happen. Speaking of unpredictable, coming up in a moment, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame and give you an opportunity to answer, no, to say whatever you want, essentially, for 15 seconds. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC.
It is the other side of midnight. I am Frank Moreno. By the way, I just got a nice SMS text message um, from Jim McGreevy because I, I shared with him a couple of the emails that I do get from prison all over the all, you know all over the listening area, Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, even some from Maine, uh, Brooklyn, Manhattan. And he said, uh, for anybody that listens in prison or has relatives in prison, if um, I send him their address, he'll hook them up with someone to get them appropriate services. So if you're in prison in New Jersey or if you have a relative in prison in New Jersey, and I'll, don't worry if you're in New York in prison, I'll work to you know get you someone that's in a New York situation as well. But um, send me your email. Email me and I'll connect you with the folks that Jim McGreevy Work so hard to get help from uh, at New Jersey Reentry. My email again. I'll, I'll I check every email. Frank Morano at wabcradio.com. That's Frank at wabcradio.com. The WABC early news with Deb Valentine's coming up next. Six to ten. You got the Bernie and Sid show. You know who's going to be on the Bernie and Sid show today? A couple of great guests. One Ray Kelly is coming on, who's the very first guest I ever had on WABC after I come came back. You know who else? Mike Francesa. Mike Francesa, legendary sports talk show host. He's coming on with Bernie and Sid today, too. But first, I want to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. John is in New Jersey. Yeah, 2,000 mules. Everybody needs to watch this. 2,000 mules. I think the only way out of this is Convention of States. Come on, Frank, let's talk about it. Convention of States. Bob on Staten Island. Yes, um, free uh, Julian uh, Assange, uh, truth uh, teller. Frank in Glendale. Good morning. Anthony, I'm still waiting for that apology, Anthony. How you doing? 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 Jim in Brooklyn. Hey, I've been with you guys from day one, minute one. I appreciate all the support you showed to the military and law enforcement. And the creature has crushed another industry. The commercial fishing industry out of Rehoboth Beach is dead. Because when he's at the beach, no fishing boats. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, you were away. I didn't even notice. But I'm glad you didn't fall into a volcano. And unless you had wine and cheese at the Pelosi's, you were never in San Francisco. Evelyn in Hudson County. Frank, I just want to compliment Avery on doing a terrific job. I've spoken to him a couple of times, and I think he's pretty awesome. He tries to be all things to all people. Thanks, Frank. Sean in Park Ridge. Good morning, Frank. Why do we park on a driveway and And drive drive on on a a parkway? parkway. (laughs) You got me. You got me. And finally, um, Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hello. Sorry, Frank, but uh, for once, Colorado is doing the right thing. Being cut off from your source permanently could lead to suicide. People that utilize sperm from anonymous sources are selfish and evil. Remind me to stop doing that. All right. The, uh, Deb Valentine in the early news is next. Bernie and Sid featuring Mike San Francesa and Ray Kelly, and not to mention Bo Deedle, six to, six to ten. I'll be back tomorrow. Who's going to be on the show? I have no idea. But I'm sure it's a show worth listening to. Frank Moreno, good day.